Legacy Chapter 6 Harlan, Kentucky Die Like a Man Like Your Brother Did In the southeastern corner of Kentucky, in the stretch of the Appalachian Mountains known as the Cumberland Plateau, lies a small town called Harlan. The Cumberland Plateau is a wild and mountainous region of flat-topped ridges, mountain walls 500 to 1,000 feet high, and narrow valleys, some wide enough only for a one-lane road and a creek. When the area was first settled, the mountainsides and valleys were covered with a dense primeval forest. Giant tulip poplars grew in the coves and at the foot of the hills, some with trunks as wide as seven or eight feet in diameter. Alongside them were white oaks, beeches, maples, walnuts, sycamores, birches, willows, cedars, pines, and hemlocks, all enmeshed in a lattice of wild grapevine comprising one of the greatest assortment of forest trees in the northern hemisphere. On the ground were bears and mountain lions and rattlesnakes. In the treetops, an astonishing array of squirrels, and beneath the soil, one thick seam after another of coal. Harlan County was founded in 1819 by eight immigrant families from the northern regions of the British Isles. They had come to Virginia in the 18th century and then moved west into the Appalachians in search of land. The county was never wealthy. For its first hundred years, it was thinly populated, rarely numbering more than 10,000 people. The first settlers kept pigs and herded sheep on the hillsides, scratching out a living on small farms in the valleys. They made whiskey in backyard stills and felled trees, floating them down the Cumberland River in the spring when the water was high. Until well into the 20th century, getting to the nearest train station was a two-day wagon trip. The only way out of town was up Pine Mountain, which was nine steep miles from bottom to top on a road that turned on occasion into no more than a muddy, rocky trail. Harlan was a remote and strange place, unknown by the larger society around it, and may well have remained so, but for the fact that two of the town's founding families, the Howards and the Turners, did not get along. The patriarch of the Howard clan was Samuel Howard. He built the town courthouse and the jail. His counterpart was William Turner, who owned a tavern and two general stores. Once, a storm blew down the fence to the Turner property, and a neighbor's cow wandered onto their land. William Turner's grandson, Devil Jim, shot the cow dead. The neighbor was too terrified to press charges and fled the county. Another time, a man tried to open a competitor to the Turner's general store. The Turners had a word with him. He closed the store and moved to Indiana. One night, Wicks Howard and little Bob Turner, the grandsons of Samuel and William respectively, played against each other in a game of poker. Each accused the other of cheating. They fought. The following day, they met in the street, and after a flurry of gunshots, little Bob Turner lay dead with a shotgun blast to the chest. A group of Turners went to the Howard's general store and spoke roughly to Mrs. Howard. She was insulted and told her son, Wills Howard, who the following week exchanged gunfire with another of Turner's grandsons, young Will Turner, on the road to Hagen, Virginia. That night, one of the Turners and a friend attacked the Howard home. The two families then clashed outside the Harlan courthouse. In the gunfire, Will Turner was shot and killed. A contingent of Howards then went to see Mrs. Turner, the mother of Will Turner and little Bob, to ask for a truce. She declined. 
You can't wipe out that blood, she said, pointing to the dirt where her son had died. Things went from bad to worse. Wills Howard ran into little George Turner near Sulphur Springs and shot him dead. The Howards ambushed three friends of the Turners, the Cawoods, killing all of them. A posse was sent out in search of the Howards. In the resulting gunfight, six more were killed or wounded. Wills Howard heard the Turners were after him, and he and a friend rode into Harlan and attacked the Turner home. Riding back, the Howards were ambushed. In the fighting, another person died. Wills Howard rode to little George Turner's house and fired at him, but missed and killed another man. A posse surrounded the Howard home. There was another gunfight, more dead. The county was in an uproar. I think you get the picture. There were places in 19th century America where people lived in harmony. Harlan, Kentucky was not one of them. Stop that, Will Turner's mother snapped at him when he staggered home, howling in pain after being shot in the courthouse gun battle with the Howards. Die like a man like your brother did. She belonged to a world so well acquainted with fatal gunshots that she had certain expectations about how they ought to be endured. Will shut his mouth, and he died. Suppose you were sent to Harlan in the late 19th century to investigate the causes of the Howard-Turner feud. You lined up every surviving participant and interviewed them as carefully as you could. You subpoenaed documents and took depositions and poured over court records until you had put together a detailed and precise accounting of each stage in the deadly quarrel. How much would you know? The answer is, not much. You'd learned that there were some people in Harlan who didn't much like each other, and you'd confirmed that Wills Howard, who was responsible for an awful lot of the violence, probably belonged behind bars. But what happened in Harlan wouldn't become clear until you looked at the violence from a much broader perspective. The first critical fact about Harlan is that at the same time that the Howards and the Turners were killing each other, there were almost identical clashes in other small towns up and down the Appalachians. In the famous Hatfield-McCoy feud on the West Virginia-Kentucky border not far from Harlan, several dozen people were killed in a cycle of violence that stretched over 20 years. In the French Eversol feud in Perry County, Kentucky, 12 died, six of them killed by Bad Tom Smith, a man, John Ed Pierce writes in Days of Darkness, who was just dumb enough to be fearless, just bright enough to be dangerous, and a dead shot. The Martin Tolliver feud in Rowan County, Kentucky in the mid-1880s featured three gunfights, three ambushes, and two house attacks, and ended in a two-hour gun battle involving a hundred armed men. The Baker-Howard feud in Clay County began in 1806 with an elk hunting party gone bad and didn't end until the 1930s, when a couple of Howards killed three Bakers in an ambush. And these were just the well-known feuds. The Kentucky legislator Harry Caudill once looked in a circuit court clerk's office in one Cumberland Plateau town and found 1,000 murder indictments stretching from the end of the Civil War in the 1860s to the beginning of the 20th century, and this for a region that never numbered more than 15,000 people, and where many violent acts never even made it to the indictment stage. Caudill writes of a murder trial in Breathitt County, or Bloody Breathitt as it came to be known, that ended abruptly when the defendant's father, a man of about 50 with huge handlebar whiskers and two immense pistols, walked up to the judge and grabbed his gavel. The feudist rapped the bench and announced, 
Court's over, and everybody can go. We ain't gonna have any court here this term, folks. The red-faced judge hastily acquiesced in this extraordinary order and promptly left town. When court convened at the next term, the court and sheriff were bolstered by 60 militiamen, but by then the defendant was not available for trial. He had been slain from ambush. When one family fights with another, it's a feud. When lots of families fight with one another, in identical little towns up and down the same mountain range, it's a pattern. What was the cause of the Appalachian pattern? Over the years, many potential causes had been examined and debated, and the consensus appears to be that the region was plagued by a particularly virulent strain of what sociologists call the culture of honor. Cultures of honor tend to take root in highlands and other marginally fertile areas, like Sicily or the mountainous Basque regions of Spain. If you live on some rocky mountainside, the explanation goes, you can't farm. You probably raise goats or sheep, and the kind of culture that grows up around being a herdsman is very different from the culture that grows up around growing crops. The survival of a farmer depends on the cooperation of others in the community. But a herdsman is off by himself. Farmers also don't have to worry that their livelihood will be stolen in the night, because crops can't easily be stolen, unless, of course, a thief wants to go to the trouble of harvesting an entire field all on his own. But a herdsman does. He's under constant threat of ruin through the loss of his animals, so he has to be aggressive. He has to make it clear through his words and deeds that he's not weak. He has to be willing to fight in response to even the slightest challenge to his reputation, and that's what the culture of honor means. It's a world where a man's reputation is at the center of his livelihood and self-worth. The critical moment in the development of the young shepherd's reputation is his first quarrel, the ethnographer J.K. Campbell writes, of one herding culture in Greece. Quarrels are necessarily public. They may occur in the coffee shop, the village square, or most frequently on a grazing boundary, where a curse or a stone aimed at one of his straying sheep by another shepherd is an insult which inevitably requires a violent response. So why was Appalachia the way it was? Because of where the original inhabitants of the region came from. The so-called American backcountry states, stretching from the Pennsylvania border south and west through Virginia and West Virginia, Kentucky and Tennessee, North Carolina and South Carolina, and the northern end of Alabama and Georgia, were settled overwhelmingly by immigrants from one of the world's most ferocious cultures of honor. They were Scotch-Irish, that is, from the lowlands of Scotland, the northern counties of England, and Ulster in Northern Ireland. These regions were known as the Borderlands, and they were remote and lawless territories that had been fought over for hundreds of years. The people of the region were steeped in violence. They were herdsmen, scraping out a living on rocky and infertile land. They were clannish, responding to the harshness and turmoil of their environment by forming tight family bonds and placing loyalty to blood above all else. And when they emigrated to North America, they moved into the American interior, to remote, lawless, rocky, and marginally fertile places like Harlan that allowed them to reproduce in the new world the culture of honor that they had created in the old world. To the first settlers, the American backcountry was a dangerous environment, just as the British borderlands had been, the historian David Hackett Fisher writes in Albion Seed. Much of the southern highlands were debatable lands, 
in the broader sense of a contested territory without established government or the rule of law. The borderers were more at home than others in this anarchic environment, which was well suited to their family system, their warrior ethic, their farming and herding economy, their attitudes towards land and wealth, and their ideas of work and power. So well adapted was the border culture to this environment that other ethnic groups tended to copy it. The ethos of the North British borders came to dominate this dark and bloody ground, partly by force of numbers, but mainly because it was a means of survival in a raw and dangerous world. The triumph of the culture of honor helps to explain why the pattern of criminality in the American South has always been so distinctive. Murder rates are higher there than the rest of the country, but crimes of property and stranger crimes, like muggings, are lower. As the sociologist John Shelton Reed has written, the homicides in which the South seems to specialize are those in which someone is being killed by someone he or often she knows, for reasons both the killer and victim understand. Reed adds, The statistics show that the Southerner who can avoid arguments and adultery is as safe as any other American, and probably safer. In the backcountry, violence wasn't for economic gain. It was personal. You fought over your honor. Many years ago, the southern newspaperman Hodding Cotter told the story of how, as a young man, he had served on a jury. As Reed describes it, the case before the jury involved an irascible gentleman who lived next door to a filling station. For several months, he had been the butt of various jokes played by the attendants and the miscellaneous loafers who hung around the station despite his warnings and his notorious short temper. One morning, he emptied both barrels of his shotgun at his tormentors, killing one, maiming another permanently, and wounding a third. When the jury was polled by the incredulous judge, Carter was the only juror who recorded his vote as guilty. As one of the others put it, he wouldn't have been much of a man if he hadn't shot them fellows. Only in a culture of honor would it have occurred to the irascible gentleman that shooting someone was an appropriate response to a personal insult and only in a culture of honor would it have occurred to a jury that murder, under those circumstances, was not a crime. I realize that we are often wary of making these kinds of broad generalizations about different cultural groups, and with good reason. This is the form that racial and ethnic stereotypes take. We want to believe that we are not prisoners of our ethnic histories. But the simple truth is that if you want to understand what happened in those small towns in Kentucky in the 19th century, you have to go back into the past. And not just one or two generations. You have to go back two or three or four hundred years to a country on the other side of the ocean and look closely at what exactly the people in a very specific geographic area of that country did for a living. The culture of honor hypothesis says that it matters where you're from not just in terms of where you grew up or where your parents grew up, but in terms of where your great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents grew up and even your great-great-great-grandparents grew up. That is a strange and powerful fact. It's just the beginning, though, because upon closer examination, cultural legacies turn out to be even stranger and more powerful than that. In the early 1990s, Two psychologists at the University of Michigan, Dove Cohen and Richard Nisbet, decided to conduct an experiment on the culture of honor. 
They knew that what happened in places like Harlan in the 19th century was, in all likelihood, a product of patterns laid down in the English borderlands centuries before. But their interest was in the present day. Was it possible to find remnants of the culture of honor in the modern era? So they decided to gather together a group of young men and insult them. We sat down and tried to figure out what is the insult that would go to the heart of an 18 to 20-year-old's brain, Cohen says. It didn't take too long to come up with asshole. The experiment went like this. The social science building at the University of Michigan has a long, narrow hallway in the basement lined with filing cabinets. The young men were called into a classroom, one by one, and asked to fill out a questionnaire. Then they were told to drop off the questionnaire at the end of the hallway and return to the classroom, a simple, seemingly innocent academic exercise. For half the young men, that was it. They were the control group. For the other half, there was a catch. As they walked down the hallway with their questionnaire, another man, a confederate of the experimenters, walked past them and pulled out a drawer in one of the filing cabinets. The already narrow hallway became even narrower. As the young men tried to squeeze by, the confederate looked up, annoyed. He slammed the filing cabinet drawer shut, jostled the young man with his shoulder, and in a low but audible voice, he said the trigger word, asshole. Cohen and Nisbet wanted to measure, as precisely as possible, what being called that word meant. They looked at the faces of their subjects and rated how much anger they saw. They shook the young men's hands to see if their grip was firmer than usual. They took saliva samples from the students, both before and after the insult, to see if being called an asshole caused their levels of testosterone and cortisol, the hormones that drive arousal and aggression, to go up. Finally, they asked the students to read the following story and supply a conclusion. It had only been about 20 minutes since they arrived at the party when Jill pulled Steve aside, obviously bothered about something. What's wrong, asked Steve. It's Larry. I mean, he knows that you and I are engaged, but he's already made two passes at me tonight. Jill walked back into the crowd, and Steve decided to keep his eye on Larry. Sure enough, within five minutes, Larry was reaching over and trying to kiss Jill. If you've been insulted, are you more likely to imagine Steve doing something violent to Larry? The results were unequivocal. There were clear differences in how the young man responded to being called a bad name. For some, it didn't. But the deciding factor wasn't how emotionally secure they were, or whether they were an intellectual or a jock, or whether they were physically imposing or not. What mattered, and I think you can guess where this is headed, is where they were from. The young men from the northern part of the United States, for the most part, treated the incident with amusement. They laughed it off. Their handshakes were unchanged. Their levels of cortisol actually went down, as if they were unconsciously trying to diffuse their own anger. Only a few of them had Steve get violent with Larry. But the Southerners? Oh, my. They were angry. Their cortisol and testosterone jumped. Their handshakes got firm. Steve was all over Larry. We even played this game of chicken, Cohen said. We sent the students back down the hallway, and around the corner comes another confederate. The hallway is blocked, so there's only room for one of them to pass. The guy we used was 6'3", 250 pounds. He used to play college football. He was now working as a bouncer in a college bar. 
He was walking down the hall in business mode, the way you walk through a bar when you're trying to break up a fight. The question was, how close do they get to the bouncer before they get out of the way? And believe me, they always get out of the way. For the Northerners, there was almost no effect. They got out of the way five or six feet beforehand, whether they had been insulted or not. The Southerners, by contrast, were downright deferential in normal circumstances, stepping aside with more than nine feet to go. But if they had just been insulted, less than two feet. Call a Southerner an asshole, and he's itching for a fight. What Cohen and Nesbitt were seeing in that long haul was the culture of honor in action. The Southerners were reacting like Wicks Howard did when little Bob Turner accused him of cheating at poker. That study is strange, isn't it? It's one thing to conclude that groups of people living in circumstances pretty similar to their ancestors act a lot like their ancestors. But those Southerners in the hallway study weren't living in circumstances similar to their British ancestors. They didn't even necessarily have British ancestors. They just happened to have grown up in the South. None of them were herdsmen, nor were their parents herdsmen. They were living in the late 20th century, not the late 19th century. They were students at the University of Michigan in one of the northernmost states in America, which meant that they were sufficiently cosmopolitan to travel hundreds of miles from the South to go to college. And none of that mattered. They still acted like they were living in 19th century Harlan, Kentucky. The median student in these studies comes from a family making over $100,000, and that's in $1990, Cohen says. The Southerners we see this effect with aren't kids who come from the hills of Appalachia. They're more likely to be the sons of upper-middle management Coca-Cola executives in Atlanta. And that's the big question. Why should we get this effect with them? Why should one get it hundreds of years later? Why are these suburban Atlanta kids acting out the ethos of the frontier? Cultural legacies are powerful forces. They have deep roots and long lives. They persist generation after generation, virtually intact, even as the economic and social and demographic conditions that spawned them have vanished. And they play such a role in directing attitudes and behavior that we cannot make sense of our world without them. So far in Outliers, we've seen that success arises out of the steady accumulation of advantages. When and where you were born, and what your parents did for a living, and what the circumstances of your upbringing were like, all make a significant difference in how well you do in the world. The question for the second part of Outliers is whether the traditions and attitudes we inherit from our forebears can play the same role. Can we learn something about how people succeed and how to make people better at what they do by taking cultural legacies seriously? I think we can. Chapter 7 The Ethnic Theory of Plane Crashes Captain, the weather radar has helped us a lot. On the morning of August 5th, 1997, the captain of Korean Air Flight 801 woke at 6 a.m. His family would later tell investigators that he went to the gym for an hour, then came home and studied the flight plan for that evening's journey to Guam. He napped and ate lunch. At three in the afternoon, he left for Seoul. Departing early enough, his wife said, to continue his preparations at Kimpo International Airport. He had been a pilot with Korean Air for almost four years, after coming over from the Korean Air Force. He had 8,900 hours of flight time, including 3,200 hours of experience in jumbo jets. A few months earlier, 
he had been given a flight safety award by his airline for successfully handling a jumbo jet engine failure at low altitude. He was 42 years old and in excellent health. At 7 p.m., the captain, his first officer, and the flight engineer met and collected the trip's paperwork. They would be flying a Boeing 747, a model known in the aviation world as the Classic. The aircraft was in perfect working order. It had once been the Korean presidential plane. Flight 801 departed the gate at 10.30 in the evening and was airborne 20 minutes later. Takeoff was without incident. Just before 1.30 in the morning, the plane broke out of the clouds and the flight crew glimpsed lights off in the distance. Is it Guam? the flight engineer asked. Then, after a pause, he said, It's Guam. Guam. The captain chuckled. Good. The first officer reported to air traffic control that the airplane was clear of Charlie Bravo, cumulonimbus clouds, and requested radar vectors for runway six left. The plane began its descent towards Guam Airport. They would make a visual approach, the captain said. He had flown into Guam Airport from Kimpo eight times previously, most recently a month ago, and he knew the airport and the surrounding terrain well. The landing gear went down. The flaps were extended 10 degrees. At 1.41 and 48 seconds, the captain said, Wiper on, and the flight engineer turned them on. It was raining. The first officer then said, Not in sight? He was looking for the runway. He couldn't see it. One second later, the ground proximity warning system called out in its electronic voice, 500 feet. The plane was 500 feet off the ground. But how could that be if they couldn't see the runway? Two seconds passed. The flight engineer said, Eh? in an astonished tone of voice. At 1.42 and 19 seconds, the first officer said, Let's make a missed approach, meaning let's pull up and make a large circle and try the landing again. One second later, the flight engineer said, Not in sight. The first officer added, Not in sight. Missed approach. At 1.42 and 22 seconds, the flight engineer said again, Go around. At 1.42 and 23 seconds, the captain repeated, Go around. But he was slow to pull the plane out of its descent. At 1.42 and 26 seconds, the plane hit the side of Nimitz Hill, a densely vegetated mountain three miles southwest of the airport. $60 million and 212,000 kilograms of steel slamming into rocky ground at 100 miles an hour. The plane skidded for 2,000 feet, severing an oil pipeline and snapping pine trees before falling into a ravine and bursting into flames. By the time rescue workers reached the crash site, 228 of the 254 people on board were dead. Twenty years before the crash of KAL-801, a Korean Air Boeing 707 wandered into Russian airspace and was shot down by a military jet over the Barents Sea. It was an accident meaning the kind of rare and catastrophic event that, for the grace of God, could happen to any airline. It was investigated and analyzed. Lessons were learned. Reports were filed. Then, two years later, a Korean Air Boeing 747 crashed in Seoul. Two accidents in two years is not a good sign. Three years after that, the airline lost another 747 near Sakhalin Island in Russia, followed 
by a Boeing 707 that went down over the Andaman Sea in 1987, two more crashes in 1989 in Tripoli and Seoul, and then another in 1994 in Jeju, South Korea. To put that record in perspective, the loss rate for an airline like the American carrier United Airlines in the period 1988 to 1998 was 0.27 per million departures, which means that they lost a plane in an accident about once in every 4 million flights. The loss rate for Korean Air in the same period was 4.79 per million departures, 17 times higher. Korean Air's planes were crashing so often that when the National Transportation Safety Board, NTSB, the U.S. agency responsible for investigating plane crashes within American jurisdiction, did its report on the Guam crash, it was forced to include an addendum listing all the new Korean Air accidents that had happened just since its investigation began. The Korean Air 747 that crash-landed at Kimpo in Seoul almost a year to the day after Guam, the jetliner that overran a runway at Korea's Ulsan Airport eight weeks after that, the Korean Air McDonnell Douglas that rammed into an embankment at Pohang Airport the following March, and then, a month after that, the Korean Air passenger jet that crashed in a residential area of Shanghai. Had the NTSB waited just a few more months, it could have added another. The Korean Air cargo plane that crashed just after takeoff from London's Stansted Airport, despite the fact that a warning bell went off in the cockpit no fewer than 14 times. In April 1999, Delta Airlines and Air France suspended their flying partnership with Korean Air. In short order, the U.S. Army, which maintains thousands of troops in South Korea, forbade its personnel from flying with the airline. South Korea's safety rating was downgraded by the U.S. Federal Aviation Authority, and Canadian officials informed Korean Air's management that they were considering revoking the company's overflight and landing privileges in Canadian airspace. In the midst of the controversy, an outside audit of Korean Air's operations was leaked to the public. The 40-page report was quickly denounced by Korean Air officials as sensationalized and unrepresentative, but by that point it was too late to save the company's reputation. The audit detailed instances of flight crews smoking cigarettes on the tarmac during refueling and in the freight hold while the plane was in the air. Crew read newspapers throughout the flight, the audit stated, often with newspapers held up in such a way that if a warning light came on, it would not be noticed. The report detailed bad morale, numerous procedural violations, and the alarming conclusion that training standards for the 747 Classic were so poor that there is some concern as to whether first officers on the Classic fleet could land the aircraft if the captain became totally incapacitated with normal abnormal conditions. By the time of the Shanghai crash, the Korean president, Kim Dae-jung, felt compelled to speak up. The issue of Korean air is not a matter of an individual company, but a matter of the whole country, he said. Our country's credibility is at stake. Daejeong then switched the presidential plane from Korean Air to its new arrival, Asiana. But then, a small miracle happened. Korean Air turned itself around. Today, the airline is a member in good standing of the prestigious SkyTeam Alliance. Its safety record since 1999 is spotless. In 2006, Korean Air was given the Phoenix Award by Air Transport World in recognition of its transformation. Today, aviation experts will tell you 
that Korean Air is as safe as any airline in the world. In this chapter, we're going to conduct a crash investigation, listen to the black box cockpit recorder, examine the flight records, look at the weather and the terrain and the airport conditions, and compare the Guam crash to another very similar plane crash, all in an attempt to understand precisely how the company transformed itself from the worst kind of outlier into one of the world's best airlines. It is a complex and sometimes strange story, but it turns on a very simple fact, the same fact that runs through the tangled history of Harlan and the Michigan students. Korean Air did not succeed, it did not write itself, until it acknowledged the importance of its cultural legacy. Plane crashes rarely happen in real life, the way they happen in the movies. Some engine part does not explode in a fiery bang. The rudder doesn't suddenly snap under the force of takeoff. The captain doesn't gasp, dear God, as he's thrown back against his seat. The typical commercial jetliner, at this point in its stage of development, is about as dependable as a toaster. Plane crashes are much more likely to be the result of an accumulation of minor malfunctions and extenuating circumstances. In a typical crash, for example, the weather is poor. Not terrible, necessarily, but bad enough that the pilot is under a little more stress than usual. In an overwhelming number of crashes, the plane is behind schedule, so the pilots are hurrying. In 52% of crashes, the pilot, at the time of the accident, has been awake for 12 hours or more, meaning that he's tired and not thinking straight. And 44% of the time, the two pilots have never flown together before, so they're not comfortable with each other. Then the errors start. And not just one error. The typical accident involves seven consecutive human errors. One of the pilots does something wrong that by itself would not have been a problem. Then one of them makes another error on top of that, which, combined with the first error, still does not amount to catastrophe. But then they make a third error on top of that, and then another, and another, and another, and another. And it's the combination of all those errors that leads to disaster. These seven errors, furthermore, are rarely problems of knowledge or flying skill. It's not that the pilot has to negotiate some critical technical maneuver and fails. The kinds of errors that cause plane crashes are invariably errors of teamwork and communication. One pilot knows something important and somehow doesn't tell the other pilot. One pilot does something wrong and the other pilot doesn't catch the error. A tricky situation needs to be resolved through a complex series of steps and somehow the pilots fail to coordinate and miss one of them. The whole flight deck design is intended to be operated by two people, and that operation works best when you have one person checking the other or both people willing to participate, says Earl Weiner, who for many years was chief engineer for safety at Boeing. Airplanes are very unforgiving if you don't do things right, and for a long time it's been clear that if you have two people operating the plane cooperatively, you will have a safer operation than if you have a single pilot flying a plane, and another person who's simply there to take over if the pilot is incapacitated. Consider, for example, the famous, in aviation circles anyway, crash of the Colombian airliner Avianca 052 in January of 1990. 
The Avianca accident so perfectly illustrates the characteristics of the modern plane crash that it is studied in flight schools. In fact, what happened to that flight is so similar to what would happen seven years later in Guam that it's a good place to start our investigation into the mystery of Korean Air's plane crash problem. The captain of the plane was Lariano Caviedes. His first officer was Maurizio Klotz. They were en route from Medellin, Colombia, to New York City's Kennedy Airport. The weather that evening was poor. There was a nor'easter up and down the east coast, bringing with it dense fog and high winds. 203 flights were delayed at Newark Airport. 200 flights were delayed at LaGuardia Airport. 161 at Philadelphia, 53 at Boston's Logan Airport, and 99 at Kennedy. Because of the weather, Avianca was held up by air traffic control three times on its way to New York. The plane circled over Norfolk, Virginia for 19 minutes, above Atlantic City for 29 minutes, and 40 miles south of Kennedy Airport for another 29 minutes. After an hour and a quarter of delay, Avianca was cleared for landing. As the plane came in on its final approach to landing, the pilots encountered severe wind shear. One moment they were flying into a strong headwind, forcing them to add extra power to maintain their momentum on the glide down. The next moment, without warning, the headwind dropped dramatically, and they were traveling much too fast to make the runway. Typically, the plane would have been flying on autopilot in that situation, which reacts immediately and appropriately to wind shear. But the autopilot on the plane was malfunctioning, and it had been switched off. At the last moment, the pilot pulled up and executed a go-around. The plane did a wide circle over Long Island and reapproached Kennedy Airport. Suddenly, one of the plane's engines failed. Seconds later, a second engine failed. Show me the runway, the pilot cried out, hoping desperately that he was close enough to Kennedy to somehow glide his crippled plane to a safe landing. But Kennedy was 16 miles away. The 707 slammed into the estate owned by the father of the tennis champion John McEnroe in the posh Long Island town of Oyster Bay. Seventy-three of the 158 passengers aboard died. It took less than a day for the cause of the crash to be determined. Fuel exhaustion. There was nothing wrong with the aircraft. There was nothing wrong with the airport. The pilots weren't drunk or high. The plane had run out of gas. It's a classic case, said Surin Ratwadi, a veteran pilot with Emirates Airlines, who has been involved for years in human factors research, which is the analysis of how human beings interact with complex systems like airplanes. Ratwadi is Sri Lankan, a lively man in his 40s who has been flying commercial jets his entire adult life. We were sitting in the lobby of the Sheraton Hotel in Manhattan. He had just landed an Emirates jumbo jet at Kennedy Airport after a long flight from Dubai. Ratwadi knew the Avianca case well. He began to tick off the typical crash preconditions. The nor'easter, the delayed flight, the minor technical malfunction with the autopilot, the three long holding patterns when air traffic control required the plane to circle round and round, which meant not only 80 minutes of extra flying time, but extra flying at low altitudes, where a plane burns far more fuel than it does in the thin air high above the clouds. They were flying a 707, which is an older airplane and is very challenging to fly, Ratwadi said. That thing is a lot of work. The flight controls are not hydraulically powered. 
They are connected by a series of pulleys and pull rods to the physical metal surfaces of the airplane. You have to be quite strong to fly that airplane. You heave it around the sky. It's as much physical effort as rowing a boat. My current airplane I fly with my fingertips. I use a joystick. My instruments are huge. Theirs were the size of coffee cups. And his autopilot was gone. So the captain had to keep looking around these nine instruments, each the size of a coffee cup, while his right hand was controlling the speed and his left hand was flying the airplane. He was maxed out. He had no resources left to do anything else. That's what happens when you're tired. Your decision-making skills erode. You start missing things, things that you would pick up on any other day. In the black box recovered from the crash site, Captain Kevietis, in the final hour of the flight, is heard to repeatedly ask for directions from ATC to be translated into Spanish, as if he no longer had the energy to make use of his English. On nine occasions, he also asked for directions to be repeated. Tell me things louder, he said, right near the end. I'm not hearing them. When the plane was circling for 40 minutes just southeast of Kennedy, when everyone on the flight deck clearly knew they were running out of fuel, the pilot could easily have asked to land at Philadelphia, which was just 65 miles away. But he didn't. It was as if he had locked in on New York. On the aborted landing, the plane's ground proximity warning system went off no less than 15 times, telling the captain that he was bringing in the plane too low. He seemed oblivious. When he aborted the landing, he should have circled back around immediately and didn't. He was exhausted. Through it all, the cockpit was filled with a heavy silence. Sitting next to Caviedes was his first officer, Maurizio Klotz, and in the flight recorder there were long stretches of nothing but rustling and engine noise. It was Klotz's responsibility to conduct all communication with ATC, which meant that his role that night was absolutely critical. But his behavior was oddly passive. It wasn't until the third holding pattern southwest of Kennedy Airport that Klotz told ATC that he didn't think the plane had enough fuel to reach an alternate airport. The next thing the crew heard from ATC was, just stand by, and, following that, clear to the Kennedy Airport. Investigators later surmised that the Avianca pilots must have assumed that ATC was jumping them to the head of the queue, in front of the dozens of other planes circling Kennedy. In fact, they weren't. They were just being added to the end of the line. It was a crucial misunderstanding upon which the fate of the plane would ultimately rest. But did the pilots raise the issue again, looking for clarification? No. Nor did they bring up the issue of fuel again for another 38 minutes. To Ratwadi, the silence in the cockpit made no sense. And as a way of explaining why, Ratwadi began to talk about what had happened to him that morning, on the way over from Dubai. We had this lady in the back, he said. We reckoned she was having a stroke, seizing, vomiting, in bad shape. She was an Indian lady whose daughter lives in the States. Her husband spoke no English, no Hindi, only Punjabi. No one could communicate with him. He looked like he had just walked off a village in the Punjab, and they had absolutely no money. I was actually over Moscow when it happened, but I knew we couldn't go to Moscow. I didn't know what would happen to these people if we did. I said to the first officer, you fly the plane, we have to go to Helsinki. The immediate problem Ratwadi faced is that they were less than halfway through a very long flight. 
which meant that they had far more fuel in their tanks than they usually do when it comes time to land. We were 60 tons over maximum landing weight, he said, so now I had to make a choice. I could dump the fuel, but countries hate it when you dump fuel. It's messy stuff, and they would have routed me somewhere over the Baltic Sea, and it would have taken me 40 minutes, and the lady probably would have died. So I decided to land anyway. My choice. That meant the plane was landing heavy. They couldn't use the automated landing system because it wasn't set up to handle a plane with that much weight. At that stage, I took over the controls, Ratwadi went on. I had to ensure that the airplane touched down very softly. Otherwise, there would have been a risk of structural damage. It could have been a real mess. There are also performance issues with landing heavy. If you clear the runway and have to go around, you may not have enough thrust to climb back up. It was a lot of work. You're juggling a lot of balls. You've got to get it right. Because it was a long flight, there were two other pilots. So I got them up, and they got involved in doing everything as well. We had four people up there, which really helped in coordinating everything. I'd never been to Helsinki before. I had no idea how the airport was, no idea whether the runways were long enough. I had to find an approach, figure out if we could land there, figure out the performance parameters, and tell the company what we were doing. At one point, I was talking to three different people, talking to Dubai, talking to Medlink, which is a service in Arizona where they put a doctor on call, and I was talking to the two doctors who were attending to the lady in the back. It was nonstop for 40 minutes. We were lucky the weather was very good in Helsinki, he continued. Trying to do an approach in bad weather, plus a heavy plane, plus an unfamiliar airport, that's not good. Because it was Finland, a first-world country, they were very well set up, very flexible. I said to them, I'm heavy. I would like to land into the wind. You want to slow yourself down in that situation. They said, no problem. They landed us in the opposite direction than they normally use. We came in over the city, which they usually avoid for noise reasons. Think about what was required of Ratwadi. He had to be a good pilot. That much goes without saying. He had to have the technical skill to land heavy. But almost everything else that Rawadi did that made that emergency landing a success fell outside the strict definition of piloting skills. He had to weigh the risk of damaging his plane against the risk to the woman's life. And then, once that choice was made, he had to think through the implications for the sick passenger in the back of Helsinki versus Moscow. He had to educate himself quickly on the parameters of an airport he had never seen before. Could it handle one of the biggest jets in the sky at 60 tons over its normal landing weight? But most of all, he had to talk to the passengers, to the doctors, to his co-pilot, to the second crew he woke up from their nap, to his superiors back home in Dubai, to ATC at Helsinki. It's safe to say that in the 40 minutes that passed between the passenger's stroke and the landing in Helsinki, there was no more than a handful of seconds of silence in the cockpit. What was required of Ratwadi was that he communicate, and not just communicate in the sense of issuing commands, but communicate in the sense of encouraging and cajoling and calming and negotiating and sharing information in the clearest and most transparent manner possible. Here, by contrast, is a transcript from Abiyanka 052 as the plane is going in for its abortive first landing. The issue is the weather. The fog is so thick that Klotz and Caviatus cannot figure out where they are. Pay close attention, though, 
not to the content of their conversation, but to the form. In particular, note the length of the silences between utterances and the tone of Klotz's remarks. Caviatus. The runway. Where is it? I don't see it. I don't see it. They take up the landing gear. The captain tells Klotz to ask for another traffic pattern. Ten seconds pass. Caviatus. Seemingly to himself. We don't have fuel. Seventeen seconds pass as the pilots give technical instructions to each other. Caviatus. I don't know what happened with the runway. I didn't see it. Klotz. I didn't see it. Air traffic control comes in and tells them to make a left turn. Caviatus. Tell them we are in an emergency. Klotz. To air traffic control. That's right to 180 on the heading and, ah, uh, we'll try once again. We're running out of fuel. Imagine this scene in the cockpit. The plane is dangerously low on fuel. They have just blown their first shot at a landing. They have no idea how much longer the plane is capable of flying. The captain is desperate. Tell them we are in an emergency. And what does Klotz say? That's right to 180 on the heading and, ah, uh, we'll try once again. We're running out of fuel. To begin with, the phrase running out of fuel has no meaning in air traffic control terminology. All planes, as they approach their destination, are by definition running out of fuel. Did Klotz mean that 052 no longer had enough fuel to make it to another alternative airport? Did he mean they were beginning to get worried about their fuel? Next, consider the structure of the critical sentence. Klotz begins with a routine acknowledgement of the instructions from air traffic control and doesn't mention his concern about fuel until the second half of the sentence. It's as if he were to say in a restaurant, yes, I'll have some more coffee, and, uh, I'm choking on a chicken bone. How seriously would the waiter take him? The air traffic controller who Klotz was speaking with testified later that I just took it as a passing comment. On stormy nights, air traffic controllers hear pilots talking about running out of fuel all the time. Even the ah that Klotz inserts between the two halves of his sentence serves to undercut the importance of what he's saying. Klotz spoke, according to another of the controllers who handled 052 that night, in a very nonchalant manner. There was no urgency in the voice. The term used by linguists to describe what Klotz was engaging in in that moment is mitigated speech, which refers to any attempt to modify or sugarcoat the meaning of what's being said. We mitigate when we're being polite, or when we're ashamed, or embarrassed, or when we're being deferential to authority. If you want your boss to do you a favor, you don't say, I'll need this by Monday. You mitigate. You say, don't bother if it's too much trouble, but if you have a chance to look at this over the weekend, that would be wonderful. In a situation like that, mitigation is entirely appropriate. In other situations, however, like a cockpit on a stormy night, it's a problem. The linguists Uta Fischer and Judith Arasno, for example, once gave the following hypothetical scenario to a group of captains and first officers and asked them how they would respond. You notice on the weather radar an area of heavy precipitation 25 miles ahead. The pilot is maintaining his present course at Mach 0.73, even though embedded thunderstorms have been reported in your area and you encounter moderate turbulence. You want to ensure that your aircraft will not penetrate this area. Question. 
what do you say to the pilot? In Fisher and Arasano's mind, there are at least six ways to try and persuade the pilot to change course and avoid the bad weather, each with different levels of mitigation. Number one, command. Turn 30 degrees right. That's the most direct and explicit way of making a point imaginable. It's zero mitigation. Number two, crew obligation statement. I think we need to deviate right around now. Notice the use of we and the fact that the request is now much less specific. That's a little softer. Number three, crew suggestion. Let's go around the weather. Implicit in that statement is, we're in this together. Number four, query. Which direction would you like to deviate? That's even softer than a crew suggestion because the speaker is conceding that he's not in charge. Number five, preference. I think it would be wise to turn left or right. Number six, hint. That return at 25 miles looks mean. That's the most mitigated statement of all. Fisher and Arasnu found that captains overwhelmingly said they would issue a command in that situation. Turn 30 degrees right. They were talking to a subordinate. They had no fear of being blunt. The first officers, on the other hand, were talking to their boss, and so they overwhelmingly chose the most mitigated alternative. They hinted. It's hard to read Fisher and Arasano's study and not be just a little bit alarmed, because a hint is the hardest kind of request to decode and the easiest to refuse. In the 1982 Air Florida crash outside Washington, D.C., the first officer tried three times to tell the captain that the plane had a dangerous amount of ice on its wings. But listen to how he says it. It's all hints. First officer. Look at how the ice is just hanging on his, ah, uh, back, back there. See that? Then, first officer tries again. See all those icicles on the back there and everything? And then, boy, this is a, this is a losing battle here on trying to de-ice those things. It gives you a false feeling of security. That's all that does. Finally, as they get clearance for takeoff, the first officer upgrades two notches to a crew suggestion. Let's check those wingtops again, since we've been sitting here a while. Captain, I think we get to go here in a minute. The last thing the first officer says to the captain, just before the plane plunges into the Potomac River, is not a hint, a suggestion, or a command. It's a simple statement of fact. And this time, the captain agrees with him. First officer, Larry, we're going down, Larry. Captain, I know it. Mitigation explains one of the great anomalies of plane crashes. In commercial airlines, captains and first officers split the flying duties equally. But historically, crashes have been far more likely to happen when the captain is in the flying seat. At first, that seems to make no sense, since the captain is almost always the pilot with the most experience. But think about the Air Florida crash. If the first officer had been the captain, would he have hinted three times? No. He would have commanded, and the plane wouldn't have crashed. Planes are safer when the least experienced pilot is flying, because it means the second pilot isn't going to be afraid to speak up. Combating mitigation has become one of the great crusades in commercial aviation over the past 15 years. Every major airline now has what is called crew resource management training, which is designed to teach junior crew members how to communicate clearly and assertively. 
For example, many airlines teach a standardized procedure for co-pilots to challenge the pilot if he or she thinks something has gone terribly awry. Captain, I'm concerned about. Then, Captain, I'm uncomfortable with. And if the captain still doesn't respond, Captain, I believe the situation is unsafe. And if that fails, the first officer is required to take over the airplane. Aviation experts will tell you that it is the success of this war on mitigation as much as anything else that accounts for the extraordinary decline in airline accidents in recent years. On a very simple level, one of the things we insist upon at Emirates is that the first officer and the captain call each other by their first names, Ratwadi said. We think that helps. It's just harder to say, Captain, you're doing something wrong, than to use a name. Ratwadi took mitigation very seriously. You couldn't be a student of the Avianca crash and not feel that way. He went on, One thing I personally try to do is, I try to put myself a little down. I say to my co-pilots, I don't fly very often. Three or four times a month, you fly a lot more. If you see me doing something stupid, it's because I don't fly very often. So tell me, help me out. Hopefully, that helps them speak up. Back to the cockpit of Avianca 052. The plane is now turning away from Kennedy, after the aborted first attempt at landing. Klotz has just been on the radio with air traffic control, trying to figure out when they can land again. Caviatus turns to him. Caviatus. What did he say? Klotz. I already advise him that we are going to attempt again because now we can't. Four seconds of silence pass. Caviatus. Advise him we are in emergency. Four more seconds of silence pass. The captain tries again. Did you tell him? Klotz. Yes, sir. I already advise him. Klotz starts talking to air traffic control, going over routine details. 150 maintaining 2000 Avianca 052 heavy. The captain is clearly at the edge of panic. Caviatus. Advise him we don't have fuel. Klotz gets back on the radio with air traffic control. Climb and maintain 3,000 and, uh, we're running out of fuel, sir. There it is again. No mention of the magic word emergency, which is what air traffic controllers are trained to listen for. Just running out of fuel at the end of a sentence, preceded by the mitigating, ah. If you're counting errors, the Avianca crew is now in double digits. Caviatus. Did you already advise that we don't have fuel? Klotz. Yes, sir. I already advise him. Caviatus. Bueno. If it were not the prelude to a tragedy, their back and forth would resemble an Abbott and Costello comedy routine. A little over a minute passes. Air traffic control. And Evianca 052 Heavy, uh, I'm going to bring you about 15 miles northeast and then turn you back onto the approach. Is that okay with you and your fuel? Klotz. I guess so. Thank you very much. I guess so? Thank you very much? They're about to crash. One of the flight attendants enters the cockpit to find out how serious the situation is. The flight engineer points to the empty fuel gauge and makes a throat-cutting gesture with his finger. But he says nothing. Nor does anyone else for the next five minutes. There's radio chatter and routine business, and then the flight engineer cries out, Flame out on engine number four. Caviatus says, Show me the runway. But the runway is 16 miles away. 36 seconds of silence pass. The plane's air traffic controller calls out one last time. You have, uh, 
You have enough fuel to make it to the airport? The transcript ends. The thing you have to understand about that crash, Ratwadi said, is that New York air traffic controllers are famous for being rude, aggressive, and bullying. They are also very good. They handle a phenomenal amount of traffic in a very constrained environment. There's a famous story about a pilot who got lost trafficking around JFK. You have no idea how easy it is to do that at JFK once you're on the ground. It's a maze. Anyway, a female controller got mad at him and said, Stop. Don't do anything. Do not talk to me until I talk to you. And she just left him there. Finally, the pilot picks up the microphone and says, Madam, was I married to you in a former life? They are unbelievable. The way they look at it, it's, I'm in control, shut up and do what I say. They will snap at you. And if you don't like what they tell you to do, you have to snap back. And then they'll say, all right then. But if you don't, they'll railroad you. I remember a British Airways flight was going into New York. They were being stuffed around by New York air traffic control. The British pilot said, you people should go to Heathrow and learn how to control an airplane. It's all in the spirit. If you're not used to that sort of give and take, New York air traffic control can be very, very intimidating. And those Avianca guys were just intimidated by the rapid fire. It was impossible to imagine Ratwadi not making his case to Kennedy air traffic control, not because he was obnoxious or pushy or had an enormous ego, but because he saw the world differently. If he needed help in the cockpit, he would wake up the second crew. If he thought Moscow was wrong, well, he would just go to Helsinki. And if Helsinki was going to bring him in with the wind, well, he was going to talk them into bringing him in against the wind. That morning, when they were leaving Helsinki, he had lined up the plane on the wrong runway, and his first officer had quickly pointed out the error. The memory made Ratwadi laugh. Masse is Swiss. He was very happy to correct me. He was giving me shit the whole way back. Ratwadi continued, All the guy had to do was tell the controller, We don't have the fuel to comply with what you are trying to do. All they had to do was say, We can't do that. We have to land in the next ten minutes. They weren't able to put that across to the controller. It was clear that Ratwadi was speaking carefully because he was making the kind of cultural generalization that often leaves us uncomfortable. But what happened with Avianca was just so strange, so inexplicable, that it demanded a more complete explanation than simply that Klotz was incompetent and the captain was tired. There was something more profound, more structural going on in that cockpit. What if there was something about the pilots being Colombian that led to that crash? Look, no American pilot would put up with that. That's the thing, Ratwadi said. They would just say, listen, buddy, I have to land. In the 1960s and 1970s, the Dutch psychologist Gert Hofstede was working for the Human Resources Department of IBM's European headquarters. Hofstede's job was to travel the globe, interviewing employees, asking questions about things like how people solve problems and how they work together and what their attitudes were to authority. The questionnaires were long and involved, and over time, Hofstede was able to develop an enormous database for analyzing the ways in which cultures differ from one another. Today, Hofstede's dimensions are one of the most widely used paradigms in cross-cultural psychology. Hofstede argued, for example, that cultures can be usefully distinguished according to how much they expect individuals to look after themselves. He called that the individualism-collectivism scale. 
the country that scores the highest on the individualism end of that scale is the United States. Not surprisingly, the United States is also the only industrialized country in the world that does not provide its citizens with universal health care. At the opposite end of that scale is Guatemala. Another of Hofstede's dimensions is uncertainty avoidance. How well does a culture tolerate ambiguity? Here are the top five uncertainty avoidance countries according to Hofstede's database, that is, the countries most reliant on rules and plans and most likely to stick to procedure regardless of circumstances. Number one, Greece. Number two, Portugal. Number three, Guatemala. Number four, Uruguay. Number five, Belgium. The bottom five, that is, the cultures best able to tolerate ambiguity, are number 49, Hong Kong, number 50, Sweden, number 51, Denmark, number 52, Jamaica, number 53, Singapore. It is important to note that Hafstidi wasn't suggesting that there was a right place or a wrong place to be on any one of those scales. Nor was he saying that a culture's position on one of his dimensions was an ironclad predictor of how someone from that country behaves. It's not impossible, for example, for someone from Guatemala to be highly individualistic. What he was saying instead was something very similar to what Nisbet and Cohen argued after their hallway studies at the University of Michigan. Each of us has his or her own distinctive personality, but overlaid on top of that our tendencies and assumptions and reflexes handed down to us by the history of the community we grew up in. And these differences are extraordinarily specific. Belgium and Denmark are only an hour or so apart by airplane, for example. Danes look a lot like Belgians. And if I dropped you on a street corner in Copenhagen, it wouldn't look all that different from a street corner in Brussels. But when it comes to uncertainty avoidance, they could not be further apart. In fact, Danes have more in common with Jamaicans when it comes to tolerating ambiguity than they do with some of their European peers. Denmark and Belgium may share in a kind of broad European liberal democratic tradition, but they have different histories, different political structures, different religious traditions, different languages and food and architecture and literature going back hundreds and hundreds of years. And the sum total of all those differences is that in certain kinds of situations that require dealing with risk and uncertainty, Danes tend to react in a very different way from Belgians. Of all of Hofstede's dimensions, though, perhaps the most interesting is what he called the power distance index, PDI. Power distance is concerned with attitudes towards hierarchy, specifically with how much a particular culture values and respects authority. To measure it, Hofstede asks questions like, how frequently, in your experience, does the following problem occur? Employees being afraid to express disagreement with their managers. In other words, to what extent do the less powerful members of organizations and institutions accept and expect that power is distributed unequally? How much are older people respected and feared? Are power holders entitled to special privileges? In low power distance index countries, Hofstede wrote in his classic text, Culture's Consequences, power is something of which power holders are almost ashamed and they will try to underplay. I once heard a Swedish, low PDI, university official state that in order to exercise power, he tried not to look powerful. 
leaders may enhance their informal status by renouncing formal symbols. In low PDI Austria, Prime Minister Bruno Kreisky was known to sometimes take the streetcar to work. In 1974, I actually saw the Dutch, low PDI, Prime Minister Joop den Yul on vacation with his motorhome at a camping site in Portugal. Such behavior of the powerful would be very unlikely in high PDI Belgium or France. It's hard to imagine the prime minister of either country in a streetcar or a motorhome. You can imagine the effect that Hofstede's findings had on people in the aviation industry. What was their great battle over mitigated speech and teamwork all about, after all? It was an attempt to reduce power distance in the cockpit. Hofstede's questions about power distance, how frequently, in your experience, does the following problem occur, employees being afraid to express disagreement with their managers, was the very question aviation experts were asking of first officers in their dealings with captains. And Hostiti's work suggested something that had not occurred to anyone in the aviation world, that the task of convincing first officers to assert themselves was going to depend an awful lot on their culture's power distance rating. That's what Ratwadi meant when he said that no American would have been so fatally intimidated by the controllers at Kennedy Airport. America is a classic low-power-distance culture. When push comes to shove, Americans fall back on their Americanness, And that Americanness means that you think of the air traffic controller as your equal. But what country do you find at the other end of the power-distance scale? Colombia. In the wake of the Avianca crash, the psychologist Robert Helmreich, who has done more than anyone to argue for the role of culture in explaining pilot behavior, wrote a brilliant analysis of the accident in which he argued that you couldn't understand Klotz's behavior without first taking into account his nationality. That his predicament that day was uniquely the predicament of someone who had a deep and abiding respect for authority. Helmreich wrote, The high power distance of Colombians could have created frustration on the part of the first officer because the captain failed to show the kind of clear, if not autocratic, decision-making expected in high-power-distance cultures. The first and second officers may have been waiting for the captain to make decisions, but still may have been unwilling to pose alternatives. Klotz sees himself as a subordinate. It's not his job to solve the crisis. It's the captain's, and the captain is exhausted and isn't saying anything. Then there's the domineering Kennedy Airport air traffic controllers ordering the planes around. Klotz is trying to tell him that he's in trouble. But he's using his own cultural language, speaking as a subordinate would to a superior. The controllers, though, aren't Colombian. They're low-power distance New Yorkers. They don't see any hierarchical gap between themselves and the pilots in the air, and to them, mitigated speech from a pilot doesn't mean the speaker is being appropriately deferential to a superior it means that the pilot doesn't have a problem. There is a point in the transcript where the cultural miscommunication between the controllers and Klotz becomes so evident that it is almost painful to read. It's the last exchange between Avianca and the control tower, just minutes before the crash. Klotz has just said, I guess so, thank you very much, in response to the controller's question about their fuel state. Captain Caviedes then turns to Klotz. Caviatus. What did he say? Klotz. The guy is angry. Angry? Klotz's feelings are hurt. 
His plane is moments from disaster, but he cannot escape the dynamic dictated to him by his culture, in which subordinates must respect the dictates of their superiors. In his mind, he has tried and failed to communicate his plight, and his only conclusion is that he must have somehow offended his superiors in the control tower. In the aftermath of the Kennedy crash, the management of Avianca Airlines held a post-mortem. Avianca had just had four accidents in quick succession, and all four cases, the airline concluded, had to do with airplanes in perfect flight condition, aircrew without physical limitations and considered of average or above average flight ability, and still the accidents happened. In the company's Madrid crash, the report went on, the co-pilot tried to warn the captain about how dangerous the situation was. The co-pilot was right, but they died because when the co-pilot asked questions, his implied suggestions were very weak. The captain's reply was to ignore him totally. Perhaps the co-pilot did not want to appear rebellious, questioning the judgment of the captain, or he did not want to play the fool because he knew the pilot had a great deal of experience flying in that area. The co-pilot should have advocated for his own opinions in a stronger way. Our ability to succeed at what we do is powerfully bound up in where we're from, and being a good pilot and coming from a high power-distance culture is a difficult mix. Columbia, by no means, has the highest PDI of all, by the way. Helmreich and a colleague, Ashley Merritt, once measured the PDI of pilots from around the world. Number one was Brazil. Number two was South Korea. The National Transportation Safety Board, the U.S. agency responsible for investigating plane crashes, is headquartered in a squat 70-zero office building on the banks of the Potomac River, in Washington, D.C. Off the agency's long hallways are laboratories filled with airplane wreckage, a mangled piece of an engine turbine, a problematic piece of a helicopter rotor. On a shelf in one of the laboratories is the cockpit voice and data recorder, the so-called black box from the devastating value jet crash in Florida in 1996, where 110 people were killed. The recorder is encased in a shoebox-sized housing made out of thick, hardened steel, and on one end of the box there is a jagged hole, as if someone, or rather something, had driven a stake into it with tremendous force. Some of the NTSB investigators are engineers who reconstruct crashes from the material evidence. Others are pilots. A surprising number of them, though, are psychologists, whose job it is to listen to the cockpit recorder and reconstruct what was said and done by the flight crew in the final minutes before a crash. One of the NTSB's leading black box specialists is a gangly 50-ish PhD psychologist named Malcolm Brenner, and Brenner was one of the investigators on the Korean air crash in Guam. Normally that approach into Guam is not difficult, Brenner began. Guam Airport had what is called a glide scope, which is like a giant beam of light stretching up into the sky from the airport and the pilot simply follows the beam all the way down to the runway. But on this particular night, the glide scope was down. It was out of service, Brenner said. It had been sent to another island to be repaired. So there was a notice to airmen that the glide scope was not operating. In the grand scheme of things, this should not have been a big problem. In the month the glide scope had been under repair, there had been something like 1,500 safe landings at Guam Airport. It was a small thing. 
an inconvenience really, that made the task of landing a plane just a little bit more difficult. The second complication was the weather, Brenner continued. Normally in the South Pacific, you've got these brief weather situations, but they go by quickly. You don't have storms. It's a tropical paradise. But that night, there were some little cells, and it just happens that that evening they were going to be flying into one of those little cells a few miles from the airport. So the captain has to decide, what exactly is my procedure for landing? Well, they were cleared for what's called a VOR-DME approach. It's complicated. It's a pain in the ass. It takes a lot of coordination to set it up. You have to come down in steps. But then, as it happens, from miles out, the captain sees the lights of Guam. So he relaxes, and he says, we're doing a visual approach. The VOR is a beacon that sends out a signal that allows the pilots to calculate their altitude as they approach an airport. It's what pilots would rely on before the invention of the glidescope. The captain's strategy was to use the VOR to get the plane close, and then once he could see the lights of the runway, to land the plane visually. Pilots do visual landings all the time. It seemed to make sense. But every time a pilot chooses a plan, he's supposed to prepare a backup in case things go awry. And this captain didn't. They should have been coordinating. He should have been briefing for the DME step-downs, Brenner went on. But he doesn't talk about that. The storm cells are all around them, and what the captain seems to be doing is assuming that at some point he's going to break out of the clouds and see the airport. And if he doesn't see it by 560 feet, he'll just go around. Now, that would work, except for one thing. The VOR on which he's basing his strategy is not at the airport. It's two and a half miles away on Nimitz Hill. There are a number of airports in the world where this is true. Sometimes you can follow the VOR down, and it takes you straight to the airport. Here, if you follow the VOR down, it takes you straight to Nimitz Hill. The pilot knew about the VOR. It was clearly stated in the airport's navigational charts. He'd flown into Guam eight times before, and in fact, he had specifically mentioned it in the briefing he gave before takeoff. But then again, it was one in the morning, and he'd been up since 6 a.m. the previous day. We believe that fatigue was involved, Brenner went on. It's a back-of-the-clock flight. You fly in and arrive at one in the morning, Korea time. Then you spend a few hours on the ground, and you fly back as the sun is coming up. The captain has flown it a month before. In that case, he slept on a first-class seat. Now he's flying in and says he's really tired. So there they are, the classic preconditions of a plane crash the same three that set the stage for Avianca 052. By themselves, none of these would be sufficient for an accident. Together, they require the combined efforts of everyone in the cockpit. And that's where Korean Air 801 ran into trouble. Here is the flight recorder transcript of the final 30 minutes of KAL Flight 801. It begins with the captain complaining of exhaustion. One twenty and one second. Captain, if this round trip is more than a nine-hour trip, we might get little something. With eight hours, we get nothing. Eight hours do not help us at all. They make us work to maximum, up to maximum. Probably this way, hotel expenses will be saved for cabin crews and maximized to flight hours. Anyway, they make us work to the maximum. There's the sound of a man shifting in his seat. 
A minute passes. One twenty-one and thirteen seconds. Captain. Eh, really sleepy. First officer. Of course. Then comes one of the most critical moments in the flight. The first officer decides to speak up. First officer. Don't you think it rains more in this area here? The first officer must have thought long and hard before making that comment. He was not flying in the easy collegiality of Sir and Ratwadi's cockpit. Among Korean air flight crews, the expectation on layovers was that the junior officers would attend to the captain to the point of making him dinner or purchasing him gifts. As one Korean air pilot puts it, the sensibility in many of the airline's cockpits was that the captain is in charge and does what he wants, when he likes, how he likes, and everyone else sits quietly and does nothing. In the Delta report on Korean air that was posted anonymously on the Internet, one of the auditors tells a story of sitting in on a Korean air flight where the first officer got confused while listening to air traffic control and mistakenly put the plane on a course intended for another plane. The flight engineer picked up something was wrong but said nothing. First officer was also not happy but said nothing. Despite good visual conditions, crew did not look out and see that current heading would not bring them to the airfield. Finally, the plane's radar picks up the mistake, and then comes the key sentence. Captain hit first officer with the back of his hand for making the error. Hit him with the back of his hand? When the three pilots all met that evening at Kimpo for their pre-flight preparation, the first officer and the engineer would have bowed to the captain. They would all have then shaken hands. It is first time to meet you, the co-pilot might have said, respectfully. The Korean language has no less than six different levels of conversational address, depending on the relationship between the addressee and the addressor. Formal deference, informal deference, blunt, familiar, intimate, and plain. The first officer would not have dared to use one of the more intimate or familiar forms when he addressed the captain. This is a culture in which enormous attention is paid to the relative standing of any two people in a conversation. The Korean linguist Homin Seon writes, At a dinner table, a lower-ranking person must wait until a higher-ranking person sits down and starts eating, while the reverse does not hold true. One does not smoke in the presence of a social superior. When drinking with a social superior, the subordinate hides his glass and turns away from the superior. In greeting a social superior, though not an inferior, a Korean must bow. A Korean must rise when an obvious social superior appears on the scene, and he cannot pass in front of an obvious social superior. All social behavior and actions are conducted in the order of seniority or ranking. As the saying goes, there is order even to drink in cold water. So, when the first officer says, Don't you think it rains more in this area here? We know what he means by that. He means, Captain, you have committed us to a visual approach with no backup plan, and the weather outside is terrible. You think that we will break out of the clouds in time to see the runway, but what if we don't? It's pitch black outside and pouring rain, and the glide scope is down. But he can't say that. He hints, and in his mind, he said as much as he can to a superior. The first officer will not mention the weather again. It is just after that moment that the plane, briefly, breaks out of the clouds, and off in the distance the pilots see lights. Is it Guam? the flight engineer asks. 
Then after a pause, he says, it's Guam, Guam. The captain chuckles, good. But it isn't good. It's an illusion. They've come out of the clouds for a moment, but they're still 20 miles from the airport, and there's an enormous amount of bad weather still ahead of them. The flight engineer knows this because it is his responsibility to track the weather. So now he decides to speak up. Today, weather radar has helped us a lot, he says. Weather radar has helped us a lot? A second hint from the flight deck. What the engineer means is just what the first officer meant. This isn't a night where you can rely on just your eyes to land the plane. Look at what the weather radar is telling us. There's trouble ahead. To Western ears, it seems strange the flight engineer would bring this subject up just once. Western communication has what linguists call a transmitter orientation. That is, it is considered the responsibility of the speaker to communicate ideas clearly and unambiguously. Even in the tragic case of the Air Florida crash, where the first officer never does more than hint about the danger posed by the ice, he still hints four times, phrasing his comments four separate ways in an attempt to make his meaning clear. He may have been constrained by the power distance between himself and the captain, but he was still operating within a Western cultural context which holds that if there is confusion, it is the fault of the speaker. But Korea, like many Asian countries, is receiver-oriented. It's up to the listener to make sense of what is being said. In the engineer's mind, he said a lot. Hominson gives the following conversation as an illustration, an exchange between an employee, Mr. Kim, and his boss, a division chief. Division chief, it's cold and I'm kind of hungry. What that means, Sohn says, is why don't you buy a drink or something to eat? Mr. Kim, how about a glass of liquor? Meaning, I will buy liquor for you. Division chief, it's okay, don't bother. Meaning, I will accept your offer if you repeat it. Mr. Kim, you must be hungry. How about going out? Meaning, I insist on treating you. Division chief, Shall I do so? Meaning, I accept. There is something beautiful in the subtlety of that exchange, in the intention that each party must pay to the motivations and desires of the other. It's civilized in the truest sense of that word. It does not permit insensitivity or indifference. But high-power distance communication only works when the listener is capable of paying close attention, and it only works if the two parties in a conversation have the luxury of time in order to unwind each other's meanings. It doesn't work in a cockpit on a stormy night with an exhausted pilot trying to land at an airport with a broken glidescope. In 2000, Korean Air finally acted, bringing in an outsider from Delta Airlines, David Greenberg, to run their flight operations. Greenberg's first step was something that would make no sense if you did not understand the true roots of Korean Air's problems. He evaluated the English language skills of all the airline's flight crews. Some of them were fine, and some of them weren't, he remembers. So he set up a program to assist and improve the proficiency of aviation English. His second step was to bring in a Western firm a subsidiary of Boeing called Altion, to take over the company's training and instruction programs. Altion conducted their training in English, Greenberg said. They didn't speak Korean. Greenberg's rule was simple. The new language of Korean air was English. 
and if you wanted to remain a pilot at the company, you had to be fluent. This was not a purge, he said. Everyone had the same opportunity. And those who found the language issue challenging were allowed to go out and study on their own nickel. But language was the filter. I can't recall that anyone was fired for flying proficiency shortcomings. Greenberg's rationale was that English was the language of the aviation world. When the pilots sat in the cockpit and worked their way through the written checklists that flight crews follow on every significant point of procedure, those checklists were in English. When they talked to air traffic control anywhere in the world, those conversations would be in English. If you are trying to land at JFK at rush hour, there is no nonverbal communication, Greenberg says. It's people talking to people, so you need to be darn sure you understand what's going on. You can say that two Koreans side by side don't need to speak English, but if they are arguing about what the guys outside said in English, then language is important. Greenberg wanted to give his pilots an alternate identity. Their problem was that they were trapped in roles dictated by the heavy weight of their country's cultural legacy. They needed an opportunity to step outside those roles when they sat in the cockpit. And language was the key to that transformation. In English, they would be free of the sharply defined gradients of Korean hierarchy, formal deference, informal deference, blunt, familiar, intimate, and plain. Instead, the pilots could participate in a culture and language with a very different legacy. The critical part of Greenberg's reform, however, is what he didn't do. He didn't throw up his hands in despair. He didn't fire all of his Korean pilots and start again with pilots from a low-power distance culture. He knew that cultural legacies matter, that they are powerful and pervasive, and that they persist long after their original usefulness has passed. But he didn't assume that legacies are an indelible part of how we are. He believed that if the Koreans were honest about where they came from and were willing to confront those aspects of their heritage that did not suit the aviation world, they could change. He offered his pilots what everyone from hockey players to software tycoons to takeover lawyers has been offered on the way to success, which is an opportunity to transform their relationship to their work. After leaving Korean Air, Greenberg helped start up a freight airline called Cargo 360, and he took a number of Korean pilots with him. They were all flight engineers, who had been number three after the captain and first officer in the strict hierarchy of the original Korean Air. These were guys who had performed in the old environment at Korean Air for as much as 15 to 18 years. They had accepted that subservient role, Greenberg said. They had been at the bottom of the ladder. We retrained them and put them with Western crew, and they've been a great success. They all change their style. They take initiative. They pull their share of the load. They don't wait for someone to direct them. These are senior people in their 50s with a long history in one context who have been retrained and are now successful doing their job in a Western cockpit. We took them out of their culture and renormed them. That is an extraordinarily liberating example. When we understand what it means to be a good pilot, when we understand how much culture and history and the world outside of the individual matter to professional success, then we don't have to throw up our hands in despair at an airline where pilots crash planes into the side of mountains. We have a way to make successes out of the unsuccessful. But first, we have to be frank about a subject that we would all too often rather ignore. In 1994, 
When Boeing first published safety data showing a clear correlation between a country's plane crashes and its score on Hofstede's dimensions, the company's researchers practically tied themselves in knots, trying not to draw a fence. We're not saying there's anything here, but we think there's something there, is how Boeing's chief engineer for airplane safety put it. Why are we so squeamish? Why is the fact that each of us comes from a culture with its own distinctive mix of strengths and weaknesses, tendencies and predispositions, so difficult to acknowledge? We cannot pretend that each of us is a product simply of our own lives and experiences. When we ignore culture, planes crash. Back to the cockpit. Today, weather radar has helped us a lot. No pilot would say that now, but this was 1997 before Korean Air took its power distance issues seriously. The captain was tired, and the engineer's true meaning sailed over his head. Yes, the captain says in response, they are very useful. He isn't listening. The plane is flying towards the VOR beacon, and the VOR is on the side of a mountain. The weather hasn't broken, so the pilots can't see anything. The captain puts the landing gear down and extends the flaps. At 1.41 and 48 seconds, the captain says, Wiper on, and the flight engineer turns them on. It's raining now. At 1.41 and 59 seconds, the first officer asks, Not in sight? He's looking for the runway. He can't see it. He's had a sinking feeling in his stomach for some time now. One second later, the ground proximity warning system calls out in its toneless electronic voice, 500 feet. The plane is 500 feet off the ground. The ground, in this case, is the side of Nimitz Hill. But the crew is confused because they think that the ground means the runway. And how can that be if they can't see the runway? The flight engineer says, Eh? In an astonished tone of voice. You can imagine them all thinking, furiously, trying to square their assumption of where the plane is with what their instruments are telling them. At 1.42 and 19 seconds, the first officer says, let's make a missed approach. He has finally upgraded from a hint to a crew obligation. He wants to abort the landing. Later in the crash investigation, it was determined that if he had seized control of the plane in that moment, there would have been enough time to pull up the nose and clear Nimitz Hill. This is what first officers are trained to do when they believe a captain is clearly in the wrong. But it is one thing to learn that in a classroom, and quite another to actually do it, in the air, with someone who might wrap you with the back of his hand if you make a mistake. One forty-two and twenty seconds. Flight engineer. Not in sight. Finally, with disaster staring them in the face, the first officer and the engineer speak up. They want the captain to go around, to pull up and start the landing over again. But it's too late. 1.42 and 21 seconds. First officer. Not in sight. Missed approach. 1.42 and 22 seconds. Flight engineer. Go around. 1.42 and 23 seconds. Captain. Go around. 1.42 and 24 seconds. Ground proximity warning. GPW. 100 feet. 1.42 and 24 seconds and 84 one hundredths. GPW. 50. GPW, 40. GPW, 30. GPW, 20. 142, 25 seconds and 78, 100s. 
sound of initial impact. 142, 28 seconds and 65 one hundredths, sound of tone. 142, 28 seconds and 91 one hundredths, sound of groans. 142 and 30 seconds and 54 one hundredths, sound of tone. End of recording. Chapter 8 Rice Patties and Math Tests No one who can rise before dawn, 360 days a year, fails to make his family rich. The gateway to the industrial heartland of southern China runs up through the wide, verdant swath of the Pearl River Delta. The land is covered by a thick, smoggy haze. The freeways are crammed with tractor-trailers. Power lines crisscross the landscape. Factories making cameras, computers, watches, and umbrellas and T-shirts stand cheek by jowl with densely packed blocks of apartment buildings and fields of banana and mango trees, sugarcane, papaya, and pineapple destined for the export market. A generation ago, the skies would have been clear and the road would have been a two-lane highway. And a generation before that, all you would have seen would have been rice paddies. Two hours in, at the headwaters of the Pearl River, lies the city of Guangzhou. And past Guangzhou, remnants of the old China are easier to find. The countryside becomes breathtakingly beautiful, rolling hills dotted with outcroppings of limestone rock against the backdrop of the Nanling Mountains. Here and there are the traditional khaki-colored mud-brick huts of the Chinese peasantry. In the small towns, there are open-air markets, chicken and geese in elaborate bamboo baskets, vegetables laid out in rows on the ground, slabs of pork on tables, tobacco being sold in big clumps. And everywhere there is rice, miles upon miles of it. In the winter season, the patties are dry and dotted with the stubble of the previous year's crop. After planting in early spring, as the humid winds begin to blow, they turn a magical green. And by the time of the first harvest, as the grains emerge on the ends of the rice shoots, the land becomes an unending sea of yellow. Rice has been cultivated in China for thousands of years. It was from China that the techniques of rice cultivation spread throughout East Asia, Japan, Korea, Singapore, and Taiwan. Year in, year out, as far back as history is recorded, farmers from across Asia have engaged in the same relentless, intricate pattern of agriculture. Rice paddies are built, not opened up in the way a wheat field is. You don't just clear the trees, underbrush, and stones, and then plow. Rice fields are carved into mountainsides in an elaborate series of terraces, or painstakingly constructed from marshland and river plains. A rice paddy has to be irrigated, so an elaborate series of dikes have to be built around the field. Channels must be dug from the nearest water source, and gates built into the dikes so the water flow can be adjusted precisely to cover the right amount of the plant. The paddy itself, meanwhile, has to have a hard clay floor. Otherwise, the water will simply seep into the ground. But of course, you can't plant rice seedlings in hard clay. So on top of the clay, there has to be a thick, soft layer of mud. And the clay pan, as it's called, has to be carefully engineered so that it will drain properly and also keep the plants submerged at the optimal level. Rice has to be fertilized repeatedly, which is another art. Traditionally, farmers used night soil, human manure, and a combination of burned compost, river mud, bean cake, 
and hemp, used carefully because too much fertilizer or the right amount applied at the wrong time can be as bad as too little. When the time came to plant, a Chinese farmer would have hundreds of different varieties to choose from, each of which offered a slightly different trade-off between yield and, say, how quickly it grew or how well it did in times of drought or how it fared in poor soils. A farmer might plant a dozen or more different varieties at one time, adjusting the mix from season to season in order to manage the risk of a crop failure. He or she, or more accurately, the whole family, since rice agriculture was a family affair, would plant the seed in a specially prepared seed bed. After a few weeks, the seedlings would be transplanted into the field in carefully spaced rows six inches apart and then painstakingly nurtured. Weeding was done by hand, diligently and unceasingly, because the seedlings could easily be choked by other plant life. Sometimes each rice shoot would be individually groomed with a bamboo comb to clear away insects. All the while, farmers had to check and recheck water levels and make sure the water didn't get too hot in the summer sun. And when the rice ripened, farmers gathered all of their friends and relatives and in one coordinated burst harvested it as quickly as possible so they could get the second crop in and harvest it before the winter dry season began. Breakfast in South China, at least for those who could afford it, is congee, white rice porridge with lettuce and dace paste and bamboo shoots. Lunch is more congee. Dinner is rice with toppings. Rice was what you sold at the market to buy the other necessities of life. It was how wealth and status were measured. It dictated almost every working moment of every day. Rice is life says the anthropologist Gonzalo Santos, who has studied a traditional South Chinese village. Without rice, you don't survive. If you want to be anyone in this part of China, you would have had to have rice. It made the world go round. Take the following list of numbers. 4853976. Spend 20 seconds memorizing that sequence before saying them out loud again. If you speak English you have about a 50% chance of remembering that sequence perfectly. If you're Chinese, though, you're almost certain to get it right every time. Why is that? Because, as human beings, we store digits in a memory loop that runs for about two seconds. We most easily memorize whatever we can say or read within that two-second span. And Chinese speakers get that list of numbers... 4853976 right every time because unlike english speakers their language allows them to fit all those seven numbers into 2 seconds that example comes from stanislas dehana's book the number sense and as dehana explains chinese number words are remarkably brief most of them can be uttered in less than 1 quarter of a second for instance 4 is c and 7 qi their English equivalents, four, seven, are longer. Pronouncing them takes about one-third of a second. The memory gap between English and Chinese apparently is entirely due to this difference in length. In languages as diverse as Welsh, Arabic, Chinese, English, and Hebrew, there is a reproducible correlation between the time required to pronounce numbers in a given language and the memory span of its speakers. In this domain, the prize for efficacy goes to the Cantonese dialect of Chinese, 
whose brevity grants residents of Hong Kong a rocketing memory span of about 10 digits. It turns out that there is also a big difference in how number naming systems in Western and Asian languages are constructed. In English, we say 14, 16, 17, 18, and 19. So one might think that we would also say 1 teen, 2 teen, and 3 teen, but we don't. We make up a different form, 11, 12, 13, and 15. Similarly, we have 40 and 60, which sound like what they are, but we also say 50 and 30 and 20, which sort of sound what they are, but not really. And for that matter, for numbers above 20, we put the decade first and the unit number second, 21, 22. For the teens, though, we do it the other way around. We put the decade second and the unit number first, 14, 17, 18. The number system in English is highly irregular. Not so in China, Japan, and Korea. They have a logical counting system. 11 is 10, 1, 12 is 10, 2, 24 is 2, 10, 4, and so on. That difference means that Asian children learn to count much faster than their American counterparts. Four-year-old Chinese children can count, on average, up to 40. American children at that age can only count to 15, and most don't reach 40 until they're five. By the age of five, in other words, American children are already a year behind their Asian counterparts in the most fundamental of math skills. The regularity of their number system also means that Asian children can perform basic functions, like addition, far more easily. Ask an English seven-year-old to add 37 plus 22 in her head, and she has to convert the words to numbers, 37 plus 22. Only then can she do the math, 2 plus 7 is 9, and 30 and 20 is 50, which makes 59. Ask an Asian child to add 3 tens 7 and 2 tens 2, and then the necessary equation is right there embedded in the sentence. No number translation is necessary. It's 5 tens 9. The Asian system is transparent, says Karen Fusion, a Northwestern University psychologist who has done much of the research on Asian-Western differences. I think that it makes the whole attitude towards math different. Instead of being a rote learning thing, there's a pattern I can figure out. There is an expectation that I can do this. There is an expectation that it's sensible. For fractions, we say three-fifths. The Chinese is literally, out of five parts, take three. That's telling you conceptually what a fraction is. It's differentiating the denominator and the numerator. The much-storied disenchantment with mathematics among Western children starts in the third and fourth grade, and Fusen argues that perhaps a part of that disenchantment is due to the fact that math doesn't seem to make sense. Its linguistic structure is clumsy. Its basic rules seem arbitrary and complicated. Asian children, by contrast, don't face nearly that same sense of bafflement. They can hold more numbers in their head and do calculations faster, and the way fractions are expressed in their language corresponds exactly to the way a fraction really is, and maybe that makes them a little bit more likely to enjoy math. And maybe because they enjoy math a little more, they try a little harder and take more math classes and are more willing to do their homework and on and on in a kind of virtuous circle. When it comes to math, in other words, Asians have a built-in advantage, but it's an unusual kind of advantage. 
For years, students from China, South Korea, and Japan, and children of recent immigrants from those countries, have substantially outperformed their Western counterparts at mathematics. And the assumption has always been that that must have something to do with some kind of innate Asian proclivity for math. The psychologist Richard Lin has even gone so far as to propose an elaborate evolutionary theory involving the Himalayas, really cold weather, pre-modern hunting practices, brain size, and specialized vowel sounds to explain why he believes Asians have higher IQs. That's how we think about math. We assume that being good at things like calculus and algebra is a simple function of how smart you are. But looking at the differences in number systems between East and West suggests something very different: that being good at math may also be something rooted in a group's culture. In the case of the Koreans, one kind of deeply rooted legacy stood in the way of the very modern task of flying an airplane. Here we have another kind of legacy. One that turns out to be perfectly suited for twenty-first-century tasks. Cultural legacies matter, and once you've seen the surprising effect of things like power distance and numbers that can be said in a quarter as opposed to a third of a second, it's hard not to wonder how many other cultural legacies are there that have an impact on twenty-first-century intellectual tasks. What if coming from a culture shaped by the demands of growing rice also makes you better at math? Could the rice paddy make a difference in the classroom? The most striking fact about a rice paddy, which you never quite grasp until you actually stand in the middle of one, is its size. It's tiny. A mu, which roughly corresponds to the size of a typical rice paddy, is one fifteenth of a hectare. That's about as big as a hotel room. A typical Asian rice farm is two or three mu. A village in China of fifteen hundred people might support itself entirely with four hundred and fifty acres of land, which in the American Midwest would be the size of a typical family farm. At that scale, with families of five and six people living off a farm the size of two hotel rooms, agriculture changes dramatically. Historically, Western agriculture has been mechanically oriented. In the West. If a farmer wanted to become more efficient or increase his yield, he introduced more and more sophisticated equipment, which allowed him to replace human labor with mechanical labor—a threshing machine, a hay baler, a combine harvester, a tractor. He cleared another field and increased his acreage because now his machinery allowed him to work more land with the same amount of effort. But in Japan or China, farmers didn't have the money to buy equipment. And in any case, there certainly wasn't any extra land that could easily be converted into new fields. So rice farmers improved their yields by becoming smarter, by becoming better managers of their own time, and by making better choices. As the anthropologist Francesca Bray puts it, rice agriculture is skill-oriented. If you're willing to weed a bit more diligently and become more adept at fertilizing. And spend a bit more time monitoring water levels, and do a better job keeping the clay pan absolutely level, and make use of every square inch of your moo, you'll harvest a bigger crop. Throughout history, not surprisingly, the people who grow rice have always worked harder than almost any other kind of farmer. That last statement may seem a little odd, because we have a sense that everyone in the pre-modern world worked really hard, but that simply isn't true. 
All of us, for example, are descended at some point from hunter-gatherers, and many hunter-gatherers, by all accounts, had a pretty leisurely life. The Kung Bushmen of the Kalahari Desert in Botswana, who are one of the last remaining practitioners of that way of life, subsist in large part on the Mangongo nut, an incredibly plentiful and protein-rich source of food that lies thick on the ground. They don't grow anything, and it's growing things, preparing, planting, weeding, harvesting, storing, that takes time, nor do they raise any animals. Occasionally, the male kung hunt, but chiefly for sport. All told, kung men and women work no more than 12 to 19 hours a week, with a balance of the time spent dancing, entertaining, and visiting family and friends. That's, at most, a thousand hours a year of work. When a kung bushman was asked once why his people hadn't taken to agriculture, he looked puzzled and said, why should we plant when there are so many mongongo nuts in the world? Or consider the life of a peasant in 18th century Europe. Men and women in those days probably worked from dawn to noon, 200 days a year, which works out to about 1,200 hours of work annually. During harvest or spring planting, the day might be longer. In the winter, much less. In the discovery of France, the historian Graham Robb writes that peasant life in a country like France, even well into the 19th century, was essentially brief episodes of work followed by long periods of idleness. 99% of all human activity described in this and other accounts of French country life, he writes, took place between late spring and early autumn. In the Pyrenees and the Alps, entire villages would essentially hibernate from the time of the first snow in November until March or April. In more temperate regions of France, where temperatures in the winter rarely fell below freezing, the same pattern held. Rob continues, The fields of Flanders were deserted for much of the year. An official report on the Nieve in 1844 described the strange mutation of the Burgundian day laborer once the harvest was in and the vine stalks had been burned. After making the necessary repairs to their tools, these vigorous men will now spend their days in bed, packing their bodies tightly together in order to stay warm and eat less food. They weaken themselves deliberately. Human hibernation was a physical and economic necessity. Lowering the metabolic rate prevented hunger from exhausting supplies. People trudged and dawdled, even in summer. After the revolution in Alsace and the Pas-de-Calais, officials complained that wine growers and independent farmers, instead of undertaking some peaceful and sedentary industry in the quieter season, abandoned themselves to dumb idleness. If you were a peasant farmer in southern China, by contrast, you didn't sleep through the winter. In the short break marked by the dry season, from November through February, you busied yourself with side tasks. You made bamboo baskets or hats and sold them in the market. You repaired the dikes in your rice paddy and rebuilt your mud hut. You sent one of your sons to work in a nearby village for a relative. You made tofu and dried bean curd and caught snakes, they were a delicacy, and trapped insects. By the time the turning of the spring came, you were back in the fields at dawn. Working in a rice field is ten to twenty times more labor-intensive than working on an equivalently sized corn or wheat field. Some estimates put the annual workload of a wet rice farmer in Asia at 3,000 hours a year.
Think for a moment about what the life of a rice farmer in the Pearl River Delta must have been like. 3,000 hours a year is a staggering amount of time to spend working, particularly if many of those hours involve being bent over in the hot sun, planting and weeding in a rice paddy. What redeemed the life of a rice farmer, however, was the nature of that work. It was a lot like the garment work done by the Jewish immigrants to New York. It was meaningful. First of all, there is a clear relationship in rice farming between effort and reward. The harder you work a rice field, the more it yields. Second, it's complex. The rice farmer isn't simply planting in the spring and harvesting in the fall. He or she is effectively a small businessman, juggling a family workforce, hedging uncertainty through seed selection, building and managing a sophisticated irrigation system, coordinating the complex process of harvesting the first crop while simultaneously preparing the second crop. And most of all, it's autonomous. The peasants of Europe worked essentially as low-paid slaves of an aristocratic landlord with little control over their own destinies. But China and Japan never developed that kind of oppressive feudal system because feudalism simply can't work in a rice economy. Growing rice is too complicated and intricate for a system that requires farmers to be coerced and bullied into going out into the fields each morning. By the 14th and 15th centuries, landlords in central and southern China had an almost completely hands-off relationship with their tenants. They would collect a fixed rent and let farmers go about their business. The thing about wet rice farming is not only that you need phenomenal amounts of labor, but it's very exacting, says the historian Kenneth Pomerantz. You have to care. It really matters that the field is perfectly leveled before you flood it. Getting it close to level but not quite right makes a big difference in terms of your yield. It really matters that the water is in the fields for just the right amount of time. There's a big difference between lining up the seedlings at exactly the right distance and doing it sloppily. It's not like you put the corn in the ground in mid-March and as long as the rain comes by the end of the month, you're okay. You're controlling all the inputs in a very direct way. And when you have something that requires that much care, the overlord has to have a system that gives the actual laborer some set of incentives where if the harvest comes out well, the farmer gets a bigger share. That's why you get fixed rents, where the landlord says, I get 20 bushels, regardless of the harvest, and if it's really good, you get the extra. It's a crop that doesn't do very well with something like slavery or wage labor. It would just be too easy to leave the gate that controls the irrigation water open a few seconds too long, and there goes your field. The historian David Arkush once compared Russian and Chinese peasant proverbs, and the differences are striking. If God does not bring it, the earth will not give it, is a typical Russian proverb. That's the kind of fatalism and pessimism typical of a repressive feudal system, where peasants had no reason to believe in the efficacy of their own work. On the other hand, Arkush writes, Chinese proverbs are striking in their belief that hard work shrewd planning, and self-reliance or cooperation with a small group will, in time, bring recompense. Here are some of the things that penniless peasants would say to one another as they worked 3,000 hours a year in the baking heat and humidity of Chinese rice paddies, which, 
by the way, are filled with leeches. No food without blood and sweat. Farmers are busy, farmers are busy. If farmers weren't busy, where would grain to get through the winter come from? In the winter, the lazy man freezes to death. Don't depend on heaven for food, but on your own two hands carrying the load. Useless to ask about the crops, it all depends on hard work and fertilizer. If a man works hard, the land will not be lazy. And then, most telling of all, no one who can rise before dawn, 360 days, fails to make his family rich. Rise before dawn, 360 days a year? For the Kung, leisurely gathering mongongo nuts, or the French peasant sleeping away the winter, or anyone else living in something other than the world of rice cultivation, that proverb would be unthinkable. This is not, of course, an unfamiliar observation about Asian culture. Go to a college campus, and students will say that the Asian students are overwhelmingly the ones studying at the library, long after everyone else has left. Some people of Asian background, understandably, get offended when people talk about their culture this way, because they sense that the stereotype is being used as a form of disparagement. But a belief in work is in fact a thing of beauty. Virtually every success story we've seen in this book so far involves someone or some group working harder than their peers. Bill Gates was addicted to his work screen as a child. So was Bill Joy. The Beatles put in thousands of hours of practice in Hamburg. Joe Flom ground away for years perfecting the art of takeovers before he got his chance. Working really hard is what successful people do. And the genius of the culture formed in the rice paddies is that hard work gave those in the fields a way to find meaning in the midst of great hardship and poverty. That lesson has served Asians well in many endeavors, but rarely so perfectly as in the case of mathematics. A few years ago, Alan Schoenfeld, a math professor at Berkeley, made a videotape of a woman named Renee as she was trying to solve a math problem. Renee was in her mid-twenties, with long black hair and round glasses. In the tape, she's playing with a software program designed to teach algebra. On the screen is an X and a Y axis. The program asks you to punch in a set of coordinates, and then it draws a line for you on the screen. At this point, I'm sure, some vague memory of your middle school algebra is coming back to you. But rest assured, you don't need to remember any of it to understand the significance of Renee's example. In fact, as you listen to Renee talking, don't focus on what she's saying, but rather on why and how she's talking the way she is. The point of the computer program, which Schoenfeld had created, was to teach students about how to calculate the slope of a line. Slope, as I'm sure you remember, or more accurately, as I'll bet you don't remember, I certainly didn't, is rise over run. So if you typed in 5 on the y-axis and 5 on the x-axis, the slope would be 1, 5 over 5. So there is Renee. She's sitting at the keyboard, and she's trying to figure out what numbers to enter in order to get the computer to draw a line that is absolutely vertical, that is directly superimposed over the y-axis. Now, those of you who remember your high school math will know that this is, in fact, impossible. A vertical line has an undefined slope. Its rise is infinite, 
any number on the y-axis, starting at zero and going on forever. Its run on the x-axis, meanwhile, is zero. Infinity divided by zero is not a number. But Renee doesn't realize that what she's trying to do can't be done. She is, rather, in the grip of what Schoenfeld calls a glorious misconception. And the reason why Schoenfeld likes to show this particular tape is that it is a perfect demonstration of how Renee came to resolve this misconception. Renee was a nurse. She wasn't someone who had been particularly interested in mathematics in the past, but she had somehow gotten hold of the software and was hooked. Now what I want to do is make a straight line with this formula parallel to the y-axis, she begins. Schoenfeld is sitting next to her. She looks over at him anxiously. It's been five years since I did any of this. She starts to fiddle with the program, typing in different numbers. Now, if I change the slope that way, minus one, now what I mean to do is make the line go straight. As she types in numbers, the line on the screen changes. Oops, that's not going to do it. She looks puzzled. What are you trying to do? Schoenfeld asks. What I'm trying to do is make a straight line parallel to the y-axis. What do I need to do here? I think what I need to do is change this a little bit. She points at the place where the number for the y-axis is. That was something I discovered, that when you go from 1 to 2, there was a rather big change. But now if you get way up there, you have to keep changing. This is Renee's glorious misconception. She's noticed the higher she makes the y-axis coordinate, the steeper the line gets. So she thinks the key to making a vertical line is just making the y-axis coordinate large enough. I guess 12 or even 13 could do it. Maybe even as much as 15, she says. She frowns. She and Schoenfeld go back and forth. She asks him questions. He prods her gently in the right direction. She keeps trying and trying, one approach after another. At one point, she types in 20. The line gets a little steeper. She types in 40. The line gets steeper still. I see that there is a relationship there, but as to why, it doesn't seem to make sense to me. What if I do 80? If 40 gets me halfway, then, then 80 should get me all the way to the y-axis. So let's just see what happens. She types in 80. The line is steeper still, but it's not totally vertical. Ooh, it's infinity, isn't it? It's never going to get there. Renée is close, but then she reverts to her original misconception. So what do I need, a hundred? Every time you double the number, you get halfway to the y-axis, but it never gets there. She types in a hundred. It's closer, but not quite there yet. She starts to think out loud. It's obvious she's on the verge of figuring something out. Well... I knew this, though, but I knew that. For each one up, it goes that many over. I'm still somewhat confused as to why. She pauses, squinting at the screen. I'm getting confused. It's a tenth of the way to the one, but I don't want it to be. And then she sees it. Oh, it's any number up and zero over. It's any number divided by zero. Her face lights up. A vertical line is anything divided by zero, and that's an undefined number. Oh, okay, now I see. The slope of a vertical line is undefined. Ah, that means something now. I won't forget that. 
Over the course of his career, Schoenfeld has videotaped countless students as they worked on math problems. But the René tape is one of his favorites because of how beautifully it illustrates what he considers to be the secret to learning mathematics. Twenty-two minutes pass from the moment René begins playing with the computer to the moment she says, Ah, that means something now. That's a long time. This is eighth-grade mathematics, Schoenfeld said. If I put the average eighth-grader in the same position as René, I'm guessing that after the first few attempts, they would have said, I don't get it. I need you to explain it. Schoenfeld once asked a group of high school students how long they would work on a homework question before they concluded it was too hard for them ever to solve. Their answers ranged from 30 seconds to 5 minutes, with the average answer 2 minutes. But Renee persists. She experiments. She goes back over the same issues time and time again. She thinks out loud. She keeps going and going. She simply won't give up. She knows on some vague level that there is something wrong with her theory about how to draw a vertical line, and she won't stop until she's absolutely sure she has it right. Renee wasn't a math natural. Abstract concepts like slope and undefined clearly didn't come easily to her. But Schoenfeld could not have found her more impressive. There's a will to make sense that drives what she does, Schoenfeld says. She wouldn't accept a superficial, yeah, you're right, and walk away. That's not who she is. And that's really unusual. He rewound the tape and pointed to a moment when René reacted with genuine surprise to something on the screen. Look, he said, she does a double take. Many students would just let that fly by. Instead, she thought, that doesn't jibe with whatever I'm thinking. I don't get it. That's important. I want an explanation. And when she finally gets the explanation, she says, yeah, that fits. At Berkeley, Schoenfeld teaches a course on problem-solving, the entire point of which, he says, is to get his students to unlearn the mathematical habits they picked up on the way to university. I pick a problem that I don't know how to solve, he says. I tell my students, you're going to have a two-week take-home exam. I know your habits. You're going to do nothing for the first week and start it the next week. And I want to warn you now, if you only spend one week on this, you're not going to solve it. If, on the other hand, you start working the day I give you the midterm, you'll be frustrated. You'll come to me and say, it's impossible. I'll tell you to keep working, and by week two, you'll find you'll make significant progress. We sometimes think of being good at mathematics as an innate ability. You either have it or you don't. But to Schoenfeld, it's not so much ability as attitude. You master mathematics if you are willing to try. That's what Schoenfeld attempts to teach his students. Success is a function of persistence and doggedness and the willingness to work hard for 22 minutes to make sense of something that most people would give up on after 30 seconds. Put a bunch of Renés in a classroom and give them the space and time to explore mathematics for themselves, and you could go a long way. Or imagine a country where René's doggedness is not the exception, but a cultural trait, embedded as deeply as the culture of honor in the Cumberland Plateau. Now that would be a country good at math. Every four years, 
an international group of educators administers a comprehensive mathematics and science test to elementary and junior high school students around the world. It's called the TIMS, the same test we discussed earlier when looking at differences between fourth graders born near the beginning of a school cutoff date and those born near the end of the date. And the point of the TIMS is to allow us to compare the educational achievement of one country with another. When students sit down to take the TIMS exam, they also have to fill out a questionnaire. It asks them all kinds of things, such as what their parents' level of education is, or what their views about math are, or what their friends are like. It's not a trivial exercise. It's about 120 questions long. In fact, it is so tedious and demanding that many students leave as many as 10 or 20 questions blank. Now here's the interesting part. As it turns out, the average number of items answered on the TIMS questionnaire varies from country to country. It is possible, in fact, to rank all the participating countries according to how many items their students answer on the questionnaire. Now, what do you think happens if you compare the questionnaire rankings with the math rankings? They're almost exactly the same. In other words, countries whose students are willing to concentrate and sit still long enough and focus on answering every single question in an endless questionnaire are the same countries whose students do the best job of solving math problems. The person who discovered this fact is an educational researcher at the University of Pennsylvania named Erling Bow, and he stumbled across it by accident. It came out of the blue, he says. Bow hasn't even been able to publish his findings in a scientific journal because, he says, it's just a bit too weird. Remember, he's not saying that the ability to finish the questionnaire and to excel on the math test is related. He's saying that they're the same, that if you compare the two rankings, they are identical. Think about this another way. Imagine that every year there was a math Olympics in some fabulous city in the world, and every country in the world sent its own team of 1,000 eighth graders. Bo's point is that we could predict precisely the order in which every country would finish in the Math Olympics without asking a single math question. All you'd have to do is to give them some task measuring how hard they were willing to work. In fact, we wouldn't even have to give them a task. We should be able to predict which countries are best at math simply by looking at which national cultures place the highest emphasis on effort and hard work. So which places are at the top of both lists? The answer shouldn't surprise you. Singapore, South Korea, China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Japan. What those five have in common, of course, is that they are all cultures shaped by the tradition of wet rice agriculture and meaningful work. They are the kinds of places where, for hundreds of years, penniless peasants, slaving away in the rice paddies 3,000 hours a year, would say things to each other like, no one who can rise before dawn 360 days a year fails to make his family rich. Chapter 9 Marita's Bargain All my friends are from Kip. In the mid-1990s, an experimental public school called the Kip Academy opened on the fourth floor of Lou Gehrig Junior High School in New York City. Lou Gehrig is in the 7th school district, 
otherwise known as the South Bronx, one of the poorest neighborhoods in New York City. It's a squat, gray, 1960s-era building across the street from a bleak collection of high-rises. A few blocks over is Grand Concourse, the borough's main thoroughfare. These are not streets that you'd happily walk down alone after dark. Kip is a middle school. Classes are large. The fifth grade has two sections of 35 students each. There are no entrance exams or admissions requirements. Students are chosen by lottery, with any fourth grader living in the Bronx eligible to apply. Roughly half of the students are African American, the rest Hispanic. Three quarters of the students come from single parent homes. Ninety percent qualify for free or reduced lunch, which is to say that their families earn so little that the federal government chips in so they can eat properly at lunchtime. Kip seems like the kind of school in the kind of neighborhood with the kind of student that would make educators despair, except that the minute you walk through the door, it's clear that something is different. The students walk quietly down the hallways in single file. In the classroom, they are taught to turn and address anyone talking to them in a protocol known as suslant. Smile, sit up, listen, ask questions, and nod when being spoken to, and track with your eyes. On the walls of the school's corridors are hundreds of pennants from the colleges that Kipp's graduates have gone on to attend. Last year, hundreds of families from across the Bronx entered the lottery for Kipp's 48 fifth-grade slots. It is no exaggeration to say that just over 10 years into its existence, Kipp has become one of the most desirable public schools in New York City. What Kipp is most famous for is mathematics. In the South Bronx, only something like 16% of all middle school students are performing at or above their grade level in math. But at Kip, by the end of the fifth grade, many of the students call math their favorite subject. In seventh grade, Kip students start high school algebra. By the end of eighth grade, 84% of the students are performing at or above their grade level, which is to say that this motley group of randomly chosen lower-income kids from dingy apartments in one of the country's worst neighborhoods, whose parents, in an overwhelming number of cases, have never set foot in a college, do as well in mathematics as the privileged eighth graders of America's wealthy suburbs. Our kids' reading is on point, said David Levin, who founded KIPP with a fellow teacher, Michael Feinberg, in 1994. They struggle a little bit with their writing skills, but when they leave here, they rock in math. There are now more than 50 KIPP schools across the United States, with more on the way. The KIPP program represents one of the most promising new educational philosophies in the United States. But its success is best understood not in terms of its curriculum, its teachers, its resources, or some kind of institutional innovation. KIPP is, rather, an organization that has succeeded by taking the idea of cultural legacies seriously. In the early 19th century, a group of reformers set out to establish a system of public education in the United States. What passed for public school at the time was a haphazard assortment of locally-run one-room schoolhouses and overcrowded urban classrooms scattered around the country. In rural areas, 
schools closed in the spring and fall and ran all summer long, so the children could help out in the busy planting and harvesting seasons. In the city, many schools mirrored the long and chaotic schedules of the children's working-class parents. The reformers wanted to make sure that all children went to school and that public school was comprehensive, meaning that all children got enough schooling to learn how to read and write and do basic arithmetic and function as productive citizens. But as the historian Kenneth Gold has pointed out, the early educational reformers were also tremendously concerned that children not get too much schooling. In 1871, for example, the United States Commissioner of Education published a report by Edward Jarvis on the relation of education to insanity. Jarvis had studied 1,741 cases of insanity and concluded that overstudy was responsible for 205 of them. Education lays the foundation of a large portion of the causes of mental disorder, Jarvis wrote. Similarly, the pioneer of public education in Massachusetts, Horace Mann, believed that working students too hard would create a most pernicious influence upon character and habits. Not infrequently is health itself destroyed by overstimulating the mind. In the education journals of the day, there were constant worries about overtaxing students or blunting their natural abilities through too much schoolwork. The reformers, Gold writes, strove for ways to reduce time spent studying because long periods of respite could save the mind from injury. Hence the elimination of Saturday classes, the shortening of the school day, and the lengthening of vacation, all of which occurred over the course of the 19th century. Teachers were cautioned that when students are required to study, their bodies should not be exhausted by long confinement, nor their minds bewildered by prolonged application. Rest also presented particular opportunities for strengthening cognitive and analytical skills. As one contributor to the Massachusetts teacher suggested, it is when thus relieved from the state of tension belonging to actual study that boys and girls, as well as men and women, acquire the habit of thought and reflection and of forming their own conclusions independently of what they are taught and the authority of others. This idea that effort must be balanced by rest, could not be more different from Asian notions about study and work, of course. But then again, the Asian worldview was shaped by the rice paddy. In the Pearl River Delta, the rice farmer planted two and sometimes three crops a year. The land was fallow only briefly. In fact, one of the singular features of rice cultivation is that because of the nutrients carried by the water used in irrigation, the more a plot of land is cultivated, the more fertile it gets. But in Western agriculture, the opposite is true. Unless a field is left fallow every few years, the soil becomes exhausted. Every winter, fields are empty. The hard labor of spring planting and fall harvesting is followed, like clockwork, by the slower pace of summer and winter. This is the logic the reformers applied to the cultivation of young minds. We formulate new ideas by analogy, working from what we know towards what we don't, and what the reformers knew were the rhythms of the agricultural seasons. A mind must be cultivated, but not too much, lest it be exhausted. 
And what was the remedy for the dangers of exhaustion? The long summer vacation, a peculiar and distinctive American legacy that has had profound consequences for the learning patterns of the students of the present day. Summer vacation is a topic seldom mentioned in American educational debates. It is considered a permanent and inviolate feature of school life, like high school football or the senior prom. But let's consider a set of elementary school test score results and see if our faith in the value of long summer holidays isn't profoundly shaken. These test scores come from research led by the Johns Hopkins University sociologist Carl Alexander. Alexander tracked the progress of 650 first graders from the Baltimore public school system, looking at how they scored on a widely used math and reading skills exam called the California Achievement Test. The scores we're going to consider are for the first five years of elementary school, broken down by socioeconomic class, lower, middle, and high. If you look at the test score results, what you find is that the students from all three socioeconomic classes start in first grade with meaningful, but not overwhelming, differences in their knowledge and ability. The first graders from the wealthiest homes have a 32-point advantage over the first graders from the poorest homes. And by the way, first graders from poor homes in Baltimore are really poor. But by fifth grade, four years later, that initially modest gap between the rich and the poor has more than doubled. This achievement gap is a phenomenon that has been observed over and over again, and it provokes one of two responses. The first response is that disadvantaged kids simply don't have the same inherent ability to learn as children from more privileged backgrounds. They're not as smart. The second, slightly more optimistic conclusion is that in some way our schools are failing poor children. We simply aren't doing a good enough job of teaching them the skills they need. But here's where Alexander's study gets interesting, because it turns out that neither of those explanations ring true. The city of Baltimore didn't just give its kids the California Achievement Test at the end of every school year in June. It gave them the test in September, too, just after summer vacation ended. What Alexander realized is that the second set of test results allowed him to do a slightly different analysis. If he looked at the difference between the score a student got at the beginning of the school year in September and the score he or she got the following June, he could measure precisely how much that student learned over the school year. And if he looked at the difference between how a student scored in June and how they scored the following September, he could see how much the student learned over the course of the summer. In other words, he could figure out, at least in part, how much of the achievement gap is the result of things that happen during the school year and how much it has to do with what happens during summer vacation. Let's start with the school year gains. That is, how many points students' test scores rise from the time they start classes in September to the time they stop in June. These results tell a completely different story from the one suggested by the full-year results. The first set of test results made it look like lower-income kids were somehow failing in the classroom. But when you just look at the school year, 
you see that that isn't true. Over the course of five years of elementary school, poor kids actually outlearn the wealthiest kids 191 points to 186 points. They lag behind the middle-class kids by only a modest amount, and in fact, in one year, second grade, they learn more than anyone else. Now, let's see what happens if we just look at how reading scores change during summer vacation. Here again is a totally different story. In the summer after first grade, the wealthiest kids come back in September, and their reading scores have jumped more than 15 points. The poorest kids come back from the holidays, and their reading scores have dropped by almost four points. Poor kids may outlearn rich kids during the school year, but during the summer, they fall far behind. Now suppose we total up all the summer learning gains from first grade to fifth grade. The reading scores of the poor kids over those four summers go up by 0.26 points. When it comes to reading skills, poor kids, in other words, learn nothing when school is not in session. The reading scores of the rich kids over the summer holidays, by contrast, go up by a whopping 52 points. Virtually all of the advantage that wealthy students have over poor students is the result of differences in the way privileged kids learn when they are not in school. What are we seeing here? One very real possibility is that these are the educational consequences of the differences in parenting styles that we talked about in the Chris Langan chapter. Think back to Alex Williams, the nine-year-old whom Annette Leroux studied. His parents believe in concerted cultivation. He gets taken to museums and gets enrolled in special programs and goes to summer camp where he takes classes. When he's bored at home, there are plenty of books to read, and his parents see it as their responsibility to keep him actively engaged in the world around him. It's not hard to see how Alex would get better at reading and math over the summer. But not Katie Brindle, a little girl from the other side of the tracks. There is no money to send her to summer camp. She's not getting driven by her mom to special classes, and there aren't books lying around the house that she can read if she gets bored there's probably just a television. She may still have a wonderful vacation, making new friends, playing outside, going to the movies, having the kind of carefree summer days that we all dream about. None of those things, though, will improve her math and reading skills. And every carefree summer day she spends puts her further and further behind Alex. Alex isn't necessarily smarter than Katie. He's just outlearning her. He's putting in a few solid months of learning during the summer months while she watches television and plays outside. What Alexander's work suggests is that the way in which education has been discussed in the United States is backwards. An enormous amount of time is spent talking about reducing class size, rewriting curricula, buying every student a shiny new laptop, and increasing school funding, all of which assume that there is something fundamentally wrong with the job schools are doing. But think back to that second set of statistics that showed what happened between September and June. Schools work. The only problem with school for the kids who aren't achieving is that there isn't enough of it. Alexander, in fact, 
has done a very simple calculation to demonstrate what would happen if the children of Baltimore went to school year-round. The answer is that poor kids and wealthy kids would, by the end of elementary school, be doing math and reading at almost the same level. Suddenly the causes of Asian math superiority become even more obvious. Students in Asian schools don't have long summer vacations. Why would they? Cultures that believe that the route to success lies in rising before dawn 360 days a year are scarcely going to give their children three straight months off in the summer. The school year in the United States is, on average, about 180 days long. The South Korean school year is 220 days long. The Japanese school year is 243 days long. One of the questions asked of test-takers on a recent math test given to students around the world, for example, was how many of the questions they were asked in algebra, calculus, and geometry involved subject matter that they had previously covered in class. For Japanese 12th graders, the answer was 92%. That's the value of going to school 243 days a year you have the time to learn everything that needs to be learned and less time to unlearn it. For American 12th graders, the comparable figure was 54%. For its poorest students, America doesn't have a school problem. It has a summer vacation problem. And that's the problem the KIPP schools set out to solve. They decided to bring the lessons of the rice paddy to the American inner city. They start school... At 7.25, David Levin says of the students at the Bronx Kip Academy. They all do a course called Thinking Skills until 7.55. They do 90 minutes of English, 90 minutes of math every day, except in fifth grade where they do two hours of math a day. An hour of science, an hour of social science, an hour of music at least twice a week, and then you have an hour and 15 minutes of orchestra on top of that. Everyone does orchestra. The day goes from 7.25 until 5. After 5, there are homework clubs, detention, sports teams. There are kids here from 7.25 until 7 p.m. in the evening. If you take an average day and you take out lunch and recess, our kids are spending 50 to 60% more time learning than the traditional public school student. Levin was standing in the school's main hallway. It was lunchtime, and the students were trooping by quietly in orderly lines, all of them in their Kip Academy shirts. Levin stopped a girl whose shirt tail was out. Do me a favor when you get a chance, he called out, miming a tucking-in movement. He continued. Saturdays, they come in nine to one. In the summer, it's eight to two. By summer, Levin was referring to the fact that Kip students do three extra weeks of school in July. These are, after all, precisely the kinds of lower-income kids who Alexander identified as losing ground over the long summer vacation. So Kip's response is simply not to have a long summer vacation. The beginning is hard, he went on. By the end of the day, they're restless. Part of it is endurance. Part of it is motivation. Part of it is incentives and rewards and fun stuff. Part of it is good old-fashioned discipline. You throw all of that into the stew. We talk a lot here about grit and self-control. The kids know what those words mean. Levin walked down the hall to an eighth-grade math class and stood quietly in the back. 
A student named Aaron was at the front of the class, working his way through a problem from the page of thinking skills exercises that all KIPP students are required to do each morning. The teacher, a ponytailed man in his thirties named Frank Corcoran, sat in a chair to the side, only occasionally jumping in to guide the discussion. It was the kind of scene repeated every day in American classrooms, with one difference. Aaron was up at the front, working on that single problem for twenty minutes. Methodically, carefully, with the participation of the class, working his way through not just the answer, but also the question of whether there was more than one way to get the answer. It was Rene painstakingly figuring out the concept of undefined slope all over again. What that extra time does is allow for a more relaxed atmosphere, Cochrane said, after the class was over. I find that the problem with math education is the sink-or-swim approach. Everything is rapid-fire, and the kids who get it first are the ones who are rewarded. So there comes to be a feeling that there are people who can do math and there are people who aren't math people. I think that extended amount of time gives you the chance as a teacher to explain things and more time for the kids to sit and digest everything that's going on, to review, to do things at a much slower pace. It seems counterintuitive, but we do things at a slower pace, and as a result, we get through a lot more. There's a lot more retention, better understanding of the material. It lets me be a bit more relaxed. We have time to have games. Kids can ask any questions they want, and if I'm explaining something, I don't feel pressed for time. I can go back over material and not feel time pressure. The extra time gave Corcoran the chance to make mathematics meaningful, to let his students see the clear relationship between effort and reward. On the walls of the classroom were dozens of certificates from the New York State Regents' Exam testifying to first-class honors for Corcoran's students. We had a girl in this class, Corcoran said. She was a horrible math student in fifth grade. She cried every Saturday when we did remedial stuff. Huge tears and tears. At the memory, Corcoran got a little emotional himself. He looked down. She just emailed us a couple weeks ago. She's in college now. She's an accounting major. The story of the miracle school that transforms losers into winners is, of course, all too familiar. It's the stuff of inspirational books and sentimental Hollywood movies. But the reality of places like Kip is a good deal less glamorous than that. To get a sense of what 50 to 60 percent more learning time means, listen to the typical day in the life of a Kip student. The student's name is Marita. She's an only child in a single-parent home. Her mother never went to college. The two of them share a one-bedroom apartment in the Bronx. Marita used to go to a parochial school down the street from her home until her mother heard of Kip. When I was in fourth grade, me and one of my other friends, Tanya, we both applied to Kip, Marita said. I remember Miss Owens. She interviewed me, and the way she was saying made it sound so hard I thought I was going to prison. I almost started crying, and she was like, if you don't want to sign this, you don't have to. My mom was right there, so I signed it. With that, her life changed. Keep in mind, while listening to what follows, that Marita is 12 years old. I wake up at 5.45 a.m. 
to get a head start, she says. I brush my teeth, shower. I get some breakfast at school if I'm running late. Usually get yelled at because I'm taking too long. I meet my friends Diana and Stephen at the bus stop, and we get the number one bus. A 5.45 wake-up is fairly typical of KIPP students, especially given the long bus and subway commutes that many have to get to school. Levin, at one point, went into a 7th grade music class with 70 kids in it and asked for a show of hands on when the students woke up. A handful said they woke up after 6. Three-quarters said they woke up before 6. And almost half said they woke up before 5.30. One classmate of Marita's, a boy named Jose, said he sometimes wakes up at 3 or 4 a.m., finishes his homework from the night before, and then goes back to sleep for a bit. Marita went on. I leave school at 5 p.m., and if I don't lollygag around, then I will be home around 5.30. Then I say hi to my mom really quickly and start my homework. And if it's not a lot of homework that day, it will take me two to three hours, and I'll be done around 9 p.m. Or if we have essays, then I'll be done like at 10 or 10.30. Sometimes my mom makes me break for dinner. I tell her I want to go straight through, but she says I have to eat. So around 8, she makes me break for dinner for like a half hour, and then I get back to work. Then, usually after that, my mom wants to hear about school, but I have to make it quick because I have to get in bed by 11. So I get all my stuff ready, and then I get into bed. I tell her about the day and what happened, and by the time we are finished, she's on the brink of sleeping, so that's probably around 11.15. Then I go to sleep, and the next morning... We do it all over again. We're in the same room, but it's a huge bedroom, and you can split it in two. We have beds on either side. Me and my mom are very close. She spoke in the matter-of-fact way of children who have no way of knowing how unusual their situation is. She had the hours of a lawyer trying to make partner, or a medical resident. All that was missing was dark circles under her eyes and a steaming cup of coffee except that she was too young for either. Sometimes I don't go to sleep when I'm supposed to, Marita continued. I go to sleep at like 12, and the next afternoon it will hit me, and I will doze off in class. But then I have to wake up because I have to get the information. I remember I was in one class, and I was dozing off, and the teacher saw me and said, Can I talk to you after class? And he asked me, Why were you dozing off? And I told him I went to sleep late. And he was like, you need to get to sleep earlier. This is not the life of a typical 12-year-old, nor is it what we would necessarily wish for a 12-year-old. Children, we like to believe, should have time to play and dream and sleep. Marita has responsibilities. She is being asked to make the same kind of hard choice that the Korean pilots had to make. To become a success at what they did, they had to shed some part of their own identity because the deep respect for authority that runs throughout Korean culture simply does not work in the cockpit. Morita has had to do the same because the cultural legacy she has been given does not match her circumstances either. Not when middle and upper middle class families are using weekends and summer vacations to push their children ahead. Her community does not give her what she needs. And what does she have to do? To give up her evenings and weekends and friends, all the elements of her old world, for Kip, 
Here is Marita again in a passage that is little short of heartbreaking. When we first started fifth grade, I used to have contact with one of the girls from my old school. And whenever I left school on Friday, I would go to her house and stay there until my mom would get home from work. So I would be at her house and I would be doing my homework. She would never have any homework. And she would say, Oh my God, you stay there late. Then she said she wanted to go to Kip, but then she would say that Kip is too hard and she didn't want to do it. And I would say, Everyone says that Kip is hard, but once you get the hang of it, it's not really that hard. She told me, It's because you're smart. And I said, No, every one of us is smart. And she was so discouraged because we stayed until five and we had a lot of homework. And I told her that us having a lot of homework helps us do better in class. And she told me she didn't want to hear the whole speech. All my friends are now from Kip. But think of things from Marita's perspective. She has made a bargain with her school. She will get up at 5.45 in the morning, go in on a Saturday, and do homework until 11 at night. In return, Kip promises it will take kids like her who are stuck in poverty and give them a chance to get out. It will get 84% of them up to or above their grade level in mathematics. On the strength of that performance, 90% of Kip students get scholarships to private or parochial high schools instead of having to attend their own desultory high schools in the Bronx. And on the strength of that high school experience, more than 80% of KIPP graduates are now going on to college, in many cases being the first in their family to do so. How could that be a bad bargain? Everything we have learned in Outliers says that success follows a predictable course. It's not the brightest who succeed. If it were, Chris Langan would be up there with Einstein. Nor is success simply the sum of the decisions and efforts we make on our own behalf. It is, rather, a gift. The successful are those who have been given opportunities and who have had the strength and presence of mind to seize them. For hockey and soccer players born in January, it's a better shot at making the All-Star team. For the Beatles, it was Hamburg. For Bill Gates, the lucky break was being born at the right time and getting the gift of a computer terminal in junior high. Joe Flom and the founders of Wachtell, Lipton, Rosen, and Katz got multiple breaks. They were born at the right time, with the right parents, and the right ethnicity, which allowed them to practice takeover law for 20 years before the rest of the legal world caught on. And what Korean Air did when it finally turned its operations around was to give its pilots the opportunity to escape the constraints of their cultural legacy. The lesson here is very simple, but it is striking how often it is overlooked. The myth of the best and the brightest and the self-made man suggests that in order to bring out the most inhuman potential, we need only identify those with promise, and our work is done. We look at Bill Gates and say, in a spirit of self-congratulation, our world allowed that 13-year-old to become a fabulously successful entrepreneur. But that's the wrong lesson. Our world allowed only one 13-year-old unlimited access to a time-sharing terminal in 1968. If a million teenagers had been given the same opportunity, how many more Microsofts would we have today? When we misunderstand or ignore the real lessons of success, we squander talent. If Canada had a second hockey league 
for those children born in the last half of the year, it would have twice as many adult hockey stars. Now multiply that lost potential through every field and profession. The world we could have is so much richer than the world we have settled for. Marita doesn't need a brand new school with acres of playing fields and gleaming facilities. She doesn't need a laptop, a smaller class, a teacher with a PhD, or a bigger apartment. She doesn't need a higher IQ or a mind as quick as Chris Langan's. All those things would be nice, of course, but they miss the point. Marita just needs a chance, because people in her world rarely even get one chance at true success. And look at the chance she was given. Someone brought a little bit of the rice paddy to the South Bronx and explained to her the miracle of meaningful work.